Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad who's been a bad influence on my sleep habits this past week, Yanathan. Do you want to say hi, Yanni? How is that my fault? <laughs> this guy only watches anime at like 2 a.m. and then he texts me about it and then we get into deep conversations about life until like 3 in the morning. It is entirely not my fault. You know, when I know that someone else is awake, I'm like, all right, I got to just bounce some ideas off you. And also, that's not specifically true because you have said that you want me to let you know how I feel about the shows I'm watching if you've already seen them. Because I remember watching some random fucking show. Was it Cyberpunk? And not telling you about it. You had a fucking fit. Because if somebody is watching something, it's nice if they tell you, hey, I'm liking this. I'm not liking this. Here's my thought process as I'm watching it. So I prefer that in general. I don't know if I prefer it at two in the morning, but I guess the better question is why are either of us awake that late on like a consistent basis? But our sleep schedules are just fucked, I guess. News? Yeah, you got any? (laughs) It took you a while to respond to that. All right, so we got the first trailer for Ancient Vegas Bride Season 2, which is premiering now on April 6th, next season. You excited for that at all? Mm, We'll see. We'll see. I think I'll watch the first full season again just to get ready for the second season because it's been a long time. Why? There's nothing really stand out from that show. I usually do that, though. If it's been a long time since I've seen a show or I don't remember much from it, I'll just rewatch the first season. I know we have talked at length about rewatching stuff between ourselves, and we will get into that later on in this episode. But I know that you're not much of a rewatcher. <laughs> we will. <laughs> we will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know why we will, but apparently we will. We also got news that an... Ava Rebuild OVA that takes place between movies two and three is releasing with the Blu-ray. And it does seem a little bit, or at least there is some speculation and some hints from comments from Anno and other people that we are going towards Ava potentially becoming this larger franchise than it already is. Kind of like maybe something like Gundam has become. I don't know how I feel about that. Like, Obviously, I'm excited for more Ava stuff just in the world that is maybe adjacent to the storylines we've explored so far, and I love Ava. I don't know if it needs to be this enormous franchise that lasts forever, but it kind of seems inevitable that we're going that direction. Yeah, I feel like fans are always a little worried when production studios decide to do this or directors decide to do this, and... I will say that if it ends up being good, I'm not going to complain. But if it ends up being bad, I'm going to be really sad. And this is how it always is. Like, that's not much of a statement here. But right now, sitting here, it really felt like the Rebuild movies concluded the story as it needed to be told. And concluded Anno's feelings through the story, which I think was what we talked about in our Ava episode is kind of like the culmination that the Rebuild movies brought us. So it does kind of feel done. (laughs) Yeah, so this feels like the only logical next step that we could possibly have, some other type of offshoot story. It could be good. I don't really know what story still needs to be told in this universe out here. Maybe something else needs to be told while Tokyo is under attack, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, we'll keep an eye out for it, of course. We got two more air dates, so Psychopaths Providence, the sequel movies airing May 12th in Japan, and that Origairu OVA that adapts the Shin novels is releasing in Japan on April 27th. We also got a, I don't know if unexpected announcement, at least for me, exciting announcement that Made in Abyss is actually getting a sequel. I don't know if people were expecting this just because 
It's a little bit unclear how well the latest season of the anime actually did, and there's not even enough source material yet to even have the content for another season. So it's cool that there's basically just a promise that we will get more as soon as there is enough content to do so, and I'm definitely excited for that. Whenever it comes out, I don't think there is any other news attached to that so far. I'm going to say promise in air quotes because nothing (laughs) is guaranteed if we've learned. Speaking of things that are not guaranteed, the currently airing Near Automata anime, it was announced that it would be a two-core adaptation. People thought it was going to be continuous. The first announcement was that they were actually going to split it. People were like, okay, splitting it kind of makes sense. But there had been lots of rumors of production issues in general with Near. And then the announcement came recently that episodes four onwards are now just indefinitely delayed. That was said to be because of COVID. People are kind of doubtful that that's actually the case. It's a little bit hard to tell. Anyways, we don't even know when Nier is coming back. Two other Aniplex series also got announced that are currently airing this season. I forget which ones are like two random shows like Akayashi Triangle or some shit like that. Those also got indefinitely delayed. So clearly there are some serious, serious problems at Aniplex. Yeah, it sucks to hear that. If it is actually a COVID issue, like, fine, take your time, work on it, whatever. But it really seems like Aniplex and A1 are just struggling with something right now. I don't know where that's going to go, especially considering how much hype I had for Nier Automata. It seems like everyone kind of hated the first episode, and then the second episode redeemed itself a little bit. But if it continues on this trajectory, I'm going to be kind of bummed out. Yeah, that's pretty much how I felt. I mean, we'll get into this next episode when we do the winter first impression so we can talk all about the episodes that are out then which i guess will only be three of them because the rest just aren't coming for a while but there's something clearly going on my preference would be just take your time from the beginning if there are going to be production issues already into the first few episodes just fucking wait like split it ahead of time give the animators and the team more time to work on it obviously we know that's not how the anime industry works but that would be what i would want and then Two last pieces of news. So one is that we got Attack on Titan final season part three, part one's first trailer. I hate that I have to say that. I love it. (laughs) That's Eric starting on March 3rd. They announced basically that the part three of the final season is getting split into two parts because this is just like a cell that is undergoing mitosis at all times. It just has to continue splitting itself. Was that the correct scientific reference, by the way? It was, actually. Aren't you a fucking scientist? I am, but I don't know shit about biology. (laughs) So it seems like that's happening in two parts. The expectation is that that might not be full seasons, but more like hour-long or something like that, special episodes. Part two is going to be later this year, so it seems like one in the spring, one maybe in the fall or something like that. I don't know what will happen. I'm excited still to see the ending of Attack on Titan, although it feels like this has dragged on for so long with really stupid naming schemes that this pretty much... Also encompasses everything I hate about modern anime production, but it is what it is. You haven't even watched the latest part of Attack on Titan. No, I haven't. Me and my partner are waiting on that. So we will get to that when we get to that. It just seems like our pacing with shows is just very slow because there's always so much to watch that when we pare it down, we still have yet to watch Attack on Titan. We have still yet to watch, I think... I wanted to watch Edge Runners together, so we'll see if that happens. But yeah, it, it's on the list somewhere. Oh, you're gonna rewatch Edge Runners, mean? Because you already watched it. Yeah, usually that's the way it ends up working. I feel like you too. That 
if there's something you know your partner wants to watch and i'm like oh i've already seen it i'll just be like all right let's just rewatch it yeah and then the last piece of news which i know you're going to be the most excited about is a new monogatari novel by nisio isen called sen monogatari i thought you were actually gonna fucking do it you fucking baited me (laughs) is coming out may 17th i mean i am not caught up with all of the off-season monster season stuff that's happened in the monogatari franchise past what has been adapted into anime what has been released officially in english like i do own all of the novels that have been adapted just not the stuff beyond that at some point i'm sure i'll get around to reading it hopefully this means at some point we get more of the anime or at least more of the novels translated and licensed and all that stuff but more monogatari for all the monogatari fans like me i'll get there don't worry (laughs) one day before you get to one piece for sure definitely not (laughs) Uh, definitely so (laughs) Is that it? That's all. All right. So on today's episode, we're dressed up to the nines once again for our annual anime awards, the Bakavanter 2022 Anime Review. We'll be giving a whirlwind tour of this past year's anime seasons, presenting awards to the shows that stuck with us for their characters or music or animation, and crowning the 2022 Anime of the Year. So let's get into it. It's Blue Lock. I'm going to keep that in. Actually, you're going to keep it in. I guess you're editing. (laughs) So, Yanni, I told you we'd get back to this, but do you ever wish that you could go back in time and experience a show again as if you were watching it for the first time? Yeah, definitely. I think it's just true of any of your favorites. Like, even if you rewatch them, you still might appreciate new things about them. You might view the series or the movie from a different perspective. Like, there are great things about rewatching something you've already watched or watching it with someone, like we were just talking about our partners, maybe rewatching something as it's their first time. That's also really fun sometimes. But there's just something special about the first time you experience something. And my emotions, the first time that I watched, like, this latest season of Kaguya or the latest season of Shihayafuru or, like, March Comes In Like a Lion, that just, like, I won't experience the exact same emotions I felt while watching those for the first time if I watch them again. Not to say that it's not still going to be great, but I do wish I could go back in time. Sometime. So I guess given that, given how infrequently you do watch or rewatch things, why, why is that? I mean, I guess it is partly because of that because I just know I won't have the exact same experience. But I think even more so than that, there's just still so much anime I want to watch. There's so much on my plan to watch that I'm like, oh, I'm really excited to get to this. I'm really excited to get to that. So it always feels like I want to keep moving forward and maybe try to find a new favorite or just experience things that I haven't yet. So I think that's the main reason for me. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I I feel like there's always a pressure to watch the newest thing. I mean, you're a seasonal anime watcher and you know that there's always something new coming out. And our backlog is never decreasing. There's always something new that's being added to the list. So it does feel a little bad to rewatch something. But also, you know that I'm very much a sentimental viewer and very much like an in-the-moment-home-feeling viewer. And sometimes I need to slam that rewatch in. Like, I've watched Your Lie in April probably too many times. I've been meaning to rewatch some stuff from this past season. I've rewatched episodes of Chainsaw Man just because you're like, damn, you got to look at the directorial (laughs) elements of this a little more. (laughs) We can't rehash that on the podcast. (laughs) No one else is going to know otherwise, so... 
Yeah. I think it's not even just the seasonal stuff. There's so much on my plan to watch that is just stuff from the early 2000s or like even later, like historically important anime that I want to get to. And I'm just not going to get to it if I keep rewatching my favorites. I do think there is value in rewatching those. I do enjoy the few times that I have been able to do that. You calling me a seasonal watcher just makes me want to emphasize how much you're not a seasonal watcher. I don't know if we've <laughs> talked about this before. I mean, we've talked about it generally before. I don't know how much we've talked about it in the context of this episode because every year without fail when we go to do the year awards episode ravi of course has not kept up with like pretty much anything throughout the year so he's always like oh yeah, yeah i got time i got time i got time to you know <laughs> sit down and get through the ones that are like contenders that people have liked that i want to watch and maybe give awards for and every time i trust him to just do that and then he realizes oh shit i only have like two weeks left until we're recording this episode and then he slams the watch as much anime as possible of course does not get through everything that he wants to. And then he makes yeah. stupid mistakes like this fucking year <laughs> when you were like, okay, I'm going to get through Bleach because it's like the number one rated thing on Mal. I'm a huge Bleach fan. It's going to be really nostalgic for me. You know what? It's late. I feel like watching Blue Lock. I'll just watch one episode though because I've already watched a lot of anime today. So I'm just trying to like relax a little bit with an episode of something that's not good. Fair enough. Watches the whole season. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> Doesn't get to Bleach, doesn't get to Mob, doesn't get to Maiden Abyss. It's a fucking travesty. Damn, let a man defend himself a little <laughs> over here. It's exactly what you said, that I do wait until watching things, and I watch as I feel in the moment. And so there was a moment when I was, like, stressed out from work, and I was like, fuck, it's, like, one in the morning. What am I going to watch right now? I'm not going to start watching Bleach. I'm not going to start watching something that's super nostalgic for me. You know, something like Mob Psycho is going to hit me emotionally. Do I really want that at one in the morning? No. Let's watch fucking Blue Lock. And so, yeah, I finished all of Blue Lock within, I think, like, I think it was that night. I think I stayed up to, like, four or five and just started messaging you in the morning. And then you were summarily losing your mind. Everybody go back to our Fall First Impressions episode where I was like, Blue Lock fucking sucks. Obviously, we agreed on that. It's a terrible show. But I said, you know, I'm probably just going to keep up with it. Like, it's mindless entertainment. And Ravi was like, how could you fucking do that? You got to drop this shit for Akiba Made War and all this better stuff. And then he didn't finish any of the shows. And he finished Blue Lock. I tell you to stop watching it because the entire time we were recording that episode, you were like, I'm so overwhelmed. Man, I don't know how I have time for any of this shit. And yet you continue watching garbage like fucking Blue Lock and Urusa Yatsura. Hey, I like Urusei Yatsura. I'll say that on the podcast. Hottest take of the episode so far. And it's not even me watching Blue Lock. <laughs> Urusei Yatsura is bad, but I still enjoyed it. Anyway, okay. Let's actually get into the episode. So if you haven't been with us before for a review episode, the way we lay this out is we, first of all, as the title might suggest, go through a review of the year. So we'll go through each season, highlight the shows that we watch, give a very quick update on our feelings since we finished watching a lot of these, or at least I have finished watching a lot of these. <laughs> then we'll talk a little bit about the Crunchyroll nominations. We always make a point of talking about what maybe is, at least in the West, the biggest award show. We have great rant material prepared for the way those nominations went. And then we'll lay out all of our awards category and we'll alternate going through our awards and talking about the anime that we considered for each award and what we ended up choosing. So year in review, let's get into it. Let's do it. All right. So the way we're going to do this one is I'm just going to kind of rapid fire go through the season. And Yanni's going to jump in wherever he wants to, which is going to be frequently because he's seen a lot more of these shows than I probably have. So 2022 
started off strong with its winter season, headlined by two of the most hotly anticipated sequel seasons in anime. Coming off its record-breaking movie run with Mugen Train, Demon Slayer continued its story with the Entertainment District arc, proving that you really can never have enough wives. Not waifus, wives. <laughs> Attack on Titan also continued with the final season part two, also known as the second finale season of the final season, and not to be confused with the final season's finale season part one. We're doing fucking stand-up out here. <laughs> yeah, man, you're just calling it like it is. You already called me Gigak before, so I might as well live up to the name. <laughs> Reiki of Kings, one of the most special shows from 2021, finished its run as well. Although it stumbled a bit at the finish line, taking the adage, keep one's friends close, but one's enemies closer a little too literally. Any viewers who have finished will actually know what I'm talking about. Anyone who doesn't, well, maybe go watch Reiki of Kings. It was one of the best shows of this past year. And then we had this season's new adaptations. Sasaki and Miyano gave Winter 2022 the kick of BL that it sorely needed, whereas Akebi Sailor Uniform asked the question, how well can we animate young girls' feet? And answered by proudly saying, yes. Very well, actually. In fact, way too well. <laughs> you got to see every toe and smell them too. You really did, yeah. Undoubtedly, though, the most popular new series this season was a love story to one of anime fans' most beloved arts, cosplay. My Dress Up Darling provided viewers with a beautiful ode to cosplay couched within a rom-com. And Marin Kitagawa quickly became one of this season's, if not this year's, best waifus for her unabashed love of cosplay. Her passion for her niche hobby resonated with so many fans, reiterating to many of us why it is that we love not only anime, but the community around it. Yeah, Winter was pretty good overall. I think Attack on Titan was pretty close to the same level, maybe slightly below of the final season part one. Demon Slayer, while I think it is known that neither of us are fans of the writing in Demon Slayer, as Ravi proudly Don't proclaimed that, that it was mid <laughs> at a convention full of Demon Slayer fans, I still think that the animation and the general adaptation quality makes it worth watching, and I enjoyed Entertainment District Arc, even if I don't think it is that great. I still think the battles and the fights and all of that stuff was good. Let's be fair. Like, it is a very good adaptation. Like, the adaptation yes. looks beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It's a fucking, you know, Yuki Kajira soundtrack. Like, of course, it's going to sound amazing. But at yeah. the end of the day, when it comes to the storyline, that's where it really suffers. Yeah. My Dress Up Darling, I also enjoyed quite a bit. I'm excited for the second season, as I think most people are. Ranking of Kings, as you said... It faltered in its ending. I think that show still had a lot of special moments that really resonated with me. I don't regret giving it my anime of the year last year, but I do think that it did not end in the place I would have wanted it to end. So overall, I think a pretty solid season to kick off the year. Pretty solid season. I see you skipping over a Kebby Sailor uniform there. So Look, I'm not going to touch on every single one. That's just <laughs> We're going to be here for too long. But since you asked, a Kebby Sailor uniform, very, very nice slice of life amazing animation, direction, etc. Just a little, and by a little, I mean a lot, too much feet, etc. Just like weird shot composition that I just didn't need in what otherwise would have been a really, really nice show. Agreed. So now, speaking of love, love was in the air in spring 2022. The third season of Kaguya-sama, ultra-romantic, 
brought its already fantastic adaptation to new heights, grabbing the hearts of its viewers and even becoming the highest rated show on Mal for a few weeks before FMA reclaimed its top spot, which you're still butthurt about. If there was anything good that came of Robbie's year-end rush to finish the year's anime, it was that he actually fucking finished Kaguya and caught up to it. So now he can come see the movie with me when it comes out next month. And we can actually talk about it on this episode. That is like a very, very positive development. I almost don't care about anything else. <laughs> Listen, man, I had priorities when it came to my watch list. Like I That's executed great. my priorities almost <laughs> flawlessly, except for Blue Lock. And so, I mean, yeah, I didn't get to Mob. I didn't get to Bleach. But the thing is, I'm going to wait for Bleach anyway. So I'll talk about it in our first impressions. Maybe we'll see. However, I really want to watch Bleach like I watched it originally, which means binging the fuck out of it. And so we'll get there when I get there. Now, speaking of grabbing hearts, Shikamori's Not Just a Cutie ripped mine out of my chest and beat me in the face with it, giving us a visually stunning adaptation that couldn't save its lackluster romance. Similarly, the second season of Komi Can't Communicate came out and relatively little fanfare surrounded that compared to its first season, which had received mixed reviews. Mixed reviews, however, doesn't even begin to describe The Rising of the Shield Hero's second season, which was the runner-up for Best Nosedive by following up on its already controversial first season with an adaptation plagued by poor pacing, animation, and character writing. You have not seen any of Rising the Shield Hero, yet you did take joy in watching the second season absolutely flounder. I always take joy in watching Isekai flounder, Ravi. That's just part of my personality. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hipsters. (laughs) But in spite of these more middling adaptations, Spring 2022 also gave us some amazing new series. Summertime rendering enthralled the like 10 people that watched it with a brilliant supernatural mystery. That's one of the ones that I didn't get to. And I I didn't get to it because it was stuck in Disney jail. Like, they literally didn't release it until, like, last week in the United States, officially. So, obviously, you could pirate it or something. But if you want to watch it legally, you couldn't until then. And it seems like people liked it. I would have probably checked it out if it was airing weekly. But they kind of just fucked us with that one. Yeah, so the Disney jail is what I was referencing there. Honestly, on Mal, it's still pretty high up, meaning that a lot of people were interested in watching it. However, there wasn't that much discourse surrounding it that I was aware of. Some of the other shows that came why. out this season... <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Some of the other shows that came out this season had way fewer people that were interested in it, like the next one I'm going to talk about, which is Your Boy Kong Ming, which baited audiences into watching a historical reverse isekai. You watch an isekai. Just let I that did. be known. It's true, yeah. With one of the best openings of the year, Awashi gave us the second best soccer anime adaptation this year. I fucking hate you. <laughs> And Birdie Wing earned high praise for its animation and also for getting some reviewers to, and I quote, round up their lesbian friends and play mini golf. However, the elephant in the room, the real waku waku, shall we say, was the highly anticipated Wit and Cloverworks collaboration, Spy X Family. Spy Family? Wow, you didn't say I swear you just like stick as many jokes that are going to annoy me <laughs> it's like just on sorry purpose. what's the name of this podcast again 
Baka X banter. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Spy Family gave us a stellar premise executed with incredible animation, music, and most of all, characters, with Anya becoming the face of anime for 2022. Spring was also, for me, very good, carried by how much I loved Spy Family, how amazing Kaguya's last season was. Everything else was fine. I really enjoyed Awashi, actually. I know you just called it the second best soccer show, but it is by far the best soccer show that came out this year. <laughs> Everything else was kind of middling. Shikimori, super, super middling. Your boy Kongming, I enjoyed. I wouldn't say it was a great show, but just kind of decent. Enjoyed it in the moment. Birdie Wing, I actually wanted to get to. I heard some pretty good things about it, but didn't get to it. So, yeah, kind of carried by Spy Family and Kaguya. Yeah, you know that in our current episode format, we don't really get a chance to fully review the shows that we went through unless we have a deep dive on it or unless you randomly decide to talk about it in future episodes, in which case we'll talk about it a little more. And so this is maybe the one time that we get to talk about the season and its shows as a whole or more comprehensively. And Awashi for sure easily best soccer show of the year. That's not saying much because there were two. But what that does mean and why it did impact me so much is because it really made me reminisce about my life and time in high school. And I know it hit you a lot harder than me yeah. because you were a soccer player. That word still hurts. Like, I know it's true, but it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> it did make me question, you know, how could I have utilized my time better in high school? What could I have done if I had pursued sports more? What would my life have been like if I had chosen to pursue some other hobby or sport, etc.? And Awashi was just a really good sports anime that we still have hopefully a lot coming in the future. But this year, it was one of the shows that impacted me the most, surprisingly. Yeah, I mean, it was cool to see how much you enjoyed it. I obviously ended up enjoying it a lot because it brought me back to a lot of my days playing soccer. And I, to be fair, I was not sure it was going to do that at its start. But it was cool to see how much you liked it, even as someone who didn't know that much about soccer beforehand. And then you were messaging me being like, oh, is this thing they're talking about tactically actually how it works? And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. They might have simplified this and this or like not been able to show this because of the animation. But like generally the concepts are really, really strong in Aoashi. So that was like a cool show that like not that many people watched compared to some of the other shows this year, but that I think we bonded over and that we both liked maybe a lot more than other people that watched it. Agreed. So transitioning from spring to summer, we came to perhaps the year's quietest season, which is saying quite a bit given how excited we were for some of the sequels that came out this season. And my God, was that excitement short-lived. I know I declared Shield Hero as the runner-up for the Best Nose Dive Award, and that's because this season we got The Devil is a Part-Timer Season 2, which won that category by a landslide. After waiting nine years... Nine years. That's probably older than some of the people fucking listening to the show for a sequel. <laughs> Studio 3 Hertz gave fans of the franchise the sequel no one thought we would ever get. And now that it's out, the sequel we wish had never gotten made. Speaking of sequels that should never have been made, Rent-A-Girlfriend Season 2 also came out. Moving up just slightly from the bottom of the barrel, we also got the second season of Classroom of the Elite. I know we've talked about Classroom of the Elite before because... Maybe it was on a first impressions episode or it was you were shitting on me somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down at all. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. <laughs> Classroom of the Elite gave us a questionable premise 
with questionable execution, and in this season really doubled down by stripping anything of value and giving us some pseudo-intellectual bullshit with the harem front and center. You're never going to watch this. Just let it no. be that way. It's fine. <laughs> Classroom of the Elite, just not good. And I remember, actually, yes, you're right, that we did talk about it, and because I specifically mentioned that there was a fucking sexual assault scene, which immediately after that, the girl who's getting sexually assaulted falls in love with the main character. Perfect. And then this second season, it goes even deeper into that bullshit. And so I was losing my fucking mind at this show. Now, I need to add a break here to allow listeners to mentally separate the garbage I just talked about from the remainder of the shows this season. Because after four years of waiting, we got the sequel season to Overlord, a beloved franchise within the isekai genre that was welcomed by fans with open arms, and by fans I mean myself. <laughs> As one reviewer put it, quote-unquote, Papa Bone Daddy is back, and yes, ladies and gentlemen, he was. Made in Abyss also returned strong with the golden city of the scorching sun, juxtaposing beautiful music, detailed backgrounds, and cute characters against the horrors of the sixth layer of the abyss. Tongue bidets. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> there was some weird shit at the beginning of that season. Actually, throughout the whole season, lots of weird shit. We talked about this in our first impressions, but I still really, really enjoyed the second season of Made in Abyss, and I'm excited, as we talked about at the beginning, for more of the franchise, but they upped the ante a little bit with the amount of questionable content I can handle, and I'm glad I pushed through it, but I don't know about some of the stuff that was in there. Yeah, we haven't actually even out of the podcast talked about Maiden Abyss a lot. So I don't really know your impressions of this season because ever since you were like, oh man, there's some really questionable child sexualization going on in this season, we kind of wrote it off and I didn't know how you actually felt about it. Okay, so there are three moments that I can recall that I was like, what the fuck is happening? Damn, you have those three moments saved. Like, this isn't a fucking <laughs> yeah, interview. You're like, I got no. this on lock. I do. So the first is that the season just starts out with the fucking flashback to the previous expedition to the Sixth Lair, and this girl is just getting raped. I understand you're showing how horrible her life is, but like anything that just starts out immediately, no warning with rape, I'm already like, okay, I don't really know how I feel about you talking about this in the nuanced way. Then there was the fucking bidets, when they're actually in the village in the Sixth Lair, and Rico goes down to fucking use the toilet. They of course, have little creatures that literally, like, lick your asshole in order to clean it after you use the bathroom. As a side note, there was a lot of, like, the main cast of Moe characters peeing and pooping in random places that you easily can skip over. Most anime just skip over characters going to the bathroom. Made in Abyss doesn't really do that. Actually, hold on. We I'm have always <laughs> watched like some of these shows. I know you're not done, but shut the fuck up. We have always watched some of these shows and been like, yeah, you know what would be more realistic if characters use the bathroom? Maiden Abyss actually has that shit going on, and then everyone's like, what the fuck is happening here? The problem is that it's like baked in like a sense of discomfort where it's like, does the mangaka enjoy this? Why is this on my screen right now? Anyways, the last thing, which I don't think you've gotten to because you haven't caught up, so it's like a slight no, spoiler, yeah. but not really. And... I think you watched the first few episodes where Rico loses her whistle. Yeah. Her white whistle. So there's a guy in the village who it is delivered to, and he's, I guess, like cleaning it for her. So she gets it back later in the season. And my guy literally says, Oh, yeah, I cleaned it so it's working properly. 
and then I climaxed. I kid you not, that is <laughs> written into the episode. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, why am I watching this? And then you have that juxtaposed with some of the most amazing world-building, character development, all these other things that you mentioned that we love about Made in Abyss. And I'm like, you know, can we just like tone down some of the other bullshit, please? So it's still worth a watch is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, definitely worth a watch. I enjoyed it. I'm excited for more. But some of that stuff I just really wish wasn't in there. Yeah, Maiden Abyss is another show that uh, I was watching with my partner, so I will be waiting on that one. That's why I couldn't get to it for this episode. Now, in classic Netflix fashion, JoJo's Stone Ocean Part 2 dropped with, again, little fanfare, but with positive reviews from fans of the franchise. Similarly, Uncle from Another World flew under the radar as a refreshing spin on the isekai genre with a creative premise and non-traditional animation. And this brings me to the breakout show of the season that brought Hideo Kojima to his knees like Horace <laughs> Recoil. That man would not shut the <laughs> fuck up about Liko Rico. Like, know, every really one of his wouldn't. tweets for, like, six months was like, hey, man, check out my new Liko Rico shirt. Oh, <laughs> check out this new mug I got. I'm like, dude, just fuck Chisato at this point. Like, chill out. Well, she's fucking Takana. But independently of that, I obviously, like everybody else, enjoyed Lico Rico, Lico Rico, whatever the fuck you want to call Lico it. Lico Rico. It was, <laughs> it was a really fun show with some great animation, some great characters. Just a really, really fun watch in what other than Made in Abyss was like a pretty terrible season, honestly. So I very much was happy that it existed. I think the Hideo Kojima thing is emblematic of how popular that show is. I think it was one of the best-selling Blu-rays of the entire year in Japan. So just more credit to an original really like taking the anime community by storm. Other than those two shows, everything else was, as you said, from terrible, like Devil's a Part-Timer, to just kind of middling. The quick thing about JoJo's, I finished the end of part six of JoJo's. It dropped in summer and then the last part in the fall. It's generally some of the strongest JoJo's content narratively, and I think that's why people are still enjoying it. The actual production of the anime, the quality of it is worse than in parts four and five and just generally some of the other parts so it's frustrating as a big fan of the franchise to see david productions prioritize urusei yatsura and basically like take the jojo's team away from jojo's and have a pretty bare bones crew working on it and then that coupled with the netflix batch release which led to people not talking about jojo's weekly as they were in past parts really kind of kill the hype but just to say overall i really enjoyed part six of jojo's and it was still good it's just a little bit disappointing with the way it was produced and released yeah, it seems like fans still had a really good time with the show. And I did as well. Yeah, it seems like the criticisms didn't make their ways over into the actual quality of the show that ended up being produced, which is good that you didn't really feel that David Productions was sacrificing a lot on this in favor of something like Uruse Yatsura. How did you feel about Liko Rico? I just told you I loved it. <laughs> Okay, you loved it. All right, okay. I asked this because it was one of those shows that I feel like made fans of Slice of Life, like you, and fans of Shonen, like everyone else, <laughs> question their existence because it combined both of those things, but also turned something that had a loose plot into something that everyone loved because it had stellar animation and music and voice acting and also had a healthy dose of Yuri. And I feel like all of those beautification elements bolstered what would otherwise have just been a middling plot. 
Yeah, you're not here for the plot and you're here for basically everything else, as you said. I think a lot of people liked it more than me. Like, I still very, very much enjoyed it, but people were like, oh yeah, anime of the year candidate. I'm like, okay, let's let's not go that far. <laughs> but I did really, really enjoy it. I will say that the whole after finishing Liko Rico was big. It was pretty gaping because yeah. Shisato and Takino were so much fun to spend time with and just the performance by the VAs, the animation, the music, the opening, like all of those elements were fantastic for this show. Those are two characters I could just watch do anything. Make them work at the cafe, make them maybe fuck, like anything really, I'm here for it. (laughs) All right, so finally we come to fall 2022. Now, you know how people, by which I mean you, love to regularly question whether any given season was the best season of anime ever? <laughs> I well, that a lot. I'm not going to touch on that question, but I will say that this was one of the most hyped seasons in recent memory. In my opinion, it absolutely delivered. Chainsaw Man gave us a stellar adaptation of Tatsuki Fujimoto's work with animation and direction that pushed the limits of storytelling. I think the criticism surrounding Chainsaw Man is entirely overblown. I think that the only thing it suffers from is excessive hype. I don't know what you think about that. We're going to talk about this for sure. I'll save it for later. Okay. All right. I like Chainsaw Man, but I've read the whole manga now too, so... I guess we're going to talk about it now. I have thoughts about this. We're not going to talk about it now. (laughs) (laughs) Cyberpunk Edgerunners showcased Studio Trigger's phenomenal skill and unique style by giving us a work of art that reminiscent of last year's Arcane, made waves both within and outside the anime community. Now, I know that as opposed to the previous sections I was just talking about, I'm going to break this a little more because the fall season was fucking insane. There was too much shit. When it came to something like Cyberpunk Edgerunners, this was one of the first times I had friends who had never watched anime or had not watched anime since they were children talking about a show with me. And it truly broke outside the anime sphere. Some of our friends who really aren't interested in anime at all were talking about this because they either loved the video game, saw that it was on Netflix. This was one time where Netflix being in the space really has helped anime out. Yeah, I mean, that happens from time to time. You know, you get something like Cyberpunk and they really caught lightning in a bottle with that where it was 10 episodes long and for like a few weeks there, everybody was talking about it and that worked out really well. Similar thing kind of happened with Devilman Crybaby where them being able to release it on Netflix let Masaki Asa just do whatever he wanted with that adaptation and that worked out really well. Even the first part of JoJo's Part 6 brought a lot of people into JoJo's that might have not given it a chance otherwise. So there definitely can be positive things about Netflix being involved in anime it's just sometimes the release which is annoying but I totally agree that cyberpunk was huge speaking of huge spy family continued its run with a great second season mob psycho 100 concluded by bringing mobs character development and his relationships to a climax and jojo's stone ocean part three gave fans everything they could wish for in a conclusion to the story besides the batch drop on Netflix which you already talked about if it sounds like I'm kind of speed running the best of the best. I just talked about three fucking amazing shows. That's because I am, and that's because this season was just that stacked. And speaking of stacked, Blue Lock. So (laughs) Blue Lock broke the internet during Japan's run in this year's World Cup, leading weebs to suddenly all become lifelong soccer fans. Under any other circumstances, as a big soccer fan watching Japan, this underdog, do well in the World Cup, 
I would have been like, yeah, I'm all for this. Like, I hope they do well. But living on social media and having to watch every fucking weeb suddenly pretend like they know anything about soccer <laughs> and then say, oh my God, Blue Lock worked. Like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I wanted Japan to lose so badly just because of this stupid show. Well, you got your wish because too bad they didn't practice PKs at Blue Lock. Am I right? Yeah, truly. <laughs> my Hero Academia aired its sixth season, which... I guess people liked. I haven't crossed the threshold to finally getting through the other shit seasons that we have to get there. David Productions decided for some reason to readapt Ursa Yatsura after 30 fucking years, showing <laughs> us that a beautiful adaptation still can't save a horrific, outdated storyline, which for some reason you liked. <laughs> I don't like it. I just <laughs> find some enjoyment in watching how bad it is. <laughs> I don't know how. For <laughs> fucking two years on this podcast, I make that argument to you every time, and you just absolutely fucking wreck me for it. And then now you're the one on the other side of the table, and I'm like, damn, yeah, you finally get it. You finally understand. You can empathize with me, daddy. <laughs> There's just something about watching this stupid gag show every week in that it looks nice and it has an all-time list of voice actors working on it that I recognize and like from so many other franchises that I'm just caught in the schedule of watching it and kind of enjoying it, even though I know it's very bad. I don't know why that happened, but it <laughs> happened. He's discovering something about himself. <laughs> yeah, truly. In line with this year's theme of giving us follow-ups to shows we never expected we'd see again, Bleach Thousand Year Blood War came out and summarily made every Bleach fan cream their pants. And if you think that I'm exaggerating, just go check out the Mal score. It's unreal. In the best bait and switch since Madoka, I don't know if there were better ones. I asked you this before and you couldn't name any better ones. Zombieland Saga? <laughs> Zombieland Saga. There we go. That's the one I was thinking of. <laughs> there we go. Why couldn't you tell me that like 30 minutes ago? <laughs> this is your job. <laughs> Akiba Made War decided to open a show that everyone thought would be a cute maid cafe slice of life with a maid getting fucking gunned down in the street in the first two minutes. Gundam the Witch for Mercury reinvigorated the franchise using a genius strategy, having two girls fuck in a mech. No need to do it yourself, as they say. I hate you. And finally... <laughs> the, and finally, the show that took the anime community by storm, Bochi the Rock. Bochi hit weebs where it hurt, their social anxiety. It quickly became one of the most relatable shows of the year, not to mention its incredible animation and soundtrack. This is a show that, much like Ranking of Kings last year, was special to me and special to both of us. As you said it, fall was fucking stacked. I think the most amazing thing about fall as a whole is that we had the big franchises that delivered. We had... Chainsaw Man, Spy Family, Mob Psycho, Bleach for a lot of people. I said Bleach for some people just because I have watched Bleach. That's why you're laughing. <laughs> Even Gundam, which is a franchise that hasn't made its way as much into the mainstream in recent years doing that. So the big franchises, the things that people were excited about, really delivered. But then we got all this stuff that came out of kind of nowhere and took people by surprise, whether it was cyberpunk being as big as it was, whether it was... You didn't even fucking mention it, but the sequel to the Tatami Galaxy for like the three people. Oh shit! I that had, that, okay, that was unintentional. I actually <laughs> forgot about that. I meant to do that. I'm sorry. You bitch. That was purely unintentional. Whether it was something like Bochi the Rock, which, as you said, took the 
anime community by storm. So it really was just this mix of all of these big franchises and shows that really surprised people to just make the season really deliver on its hype. That's actually all I got. So you can talk about the movies. Okay, we always run down the movies as well as the series since they are technically candidates for awards that we could give out. So you probably haven't seen like any of these, but I'm just going to name what came out this year. The man has One Piece film right on there, which we saw together oh, and is like, you haven't seen any of these. <laughs> so let's start with Winter. The two movies that came out in Winter were Fruits Basket Prelude and Goodbye Don Glease. I've seen both of these. Fruits Basket Prelude, fucking horrific. Don't watch that shit. I don't know why anybody thought this was a good idea. And I like Fruits Basket, but... The movie's an hour and a half. The first half an hour is just a recap of the last season. I don't know why anybody needed that. And then it interjects with the story of Toru's mom and dad. And it's literally just a grooming story. I think when they didn't include it in the original run, people were like, oh, maybe the team and the author reflected on how that was written 20 years ago. And now, like, they wouldn't have written that. And then they were like, nope, let's cash in and do a grooming movie, baby. <laughs> don't watch that shit. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. Goodbye, Don Gleese. I was actually excited for because it's done by the same director who directed A Place Further Than the Universe, which is a show that I really, really like. Movie looks amazing, unbelievable. It's really not that good. <laughs> the plot makes no <laughs> sense and it is not good. Looks amazing. Kind of disappointing overall. Is this directed by Makoto Shinkai? No, I just told you who it was directed by, you bitch. <laughs> In spring, we only had one movie, which was Bubble, which I also watched, which was kind of hyped because it was a Wit Studio original with a ton of talented creators behind it. Another movie that looks amazing is really, really shit. I'm glad you're taking the bullet for me for these. <laughs> I'm glad you're just the fucking body double I need to watch these <laughs> That's <shows>. me. <laughs> the sad part is I'm excited for some of these and they just turned out to be bad. In summer, we got One Piece Film Red, which we actually talked about quite a bit on the podcast and we got to see together. That was quite a bit of fun and my first One Piece experience. Is that the best movie you've seen all year? No. Fuck! Because the next one is the Eurocamp movie, which also came out in summer, which we didn't get to see at Anime NYC, which I did get to see when it released on Crunchyroll on streaming, and that was really, really fun. I love anything Eurocamp. It really hits me in the right, comfy feelings, outdoorsy place. And... I really, really enjoyed that movie. If you like Eurocap, you should 100% go watch it, especially now that it's on Crunchyroll. I think One Piece was the second best movie that I watched this year. Oh, all right. I'll take your fucking pity vote. <laughs> yeah, we talked about One Piece already in one of our prior episodes. I can't remember exactly which one. Me neither, yeah. However, that being said, One Piece Film Red was a really good One Piece movie. I mean, the One Piece movies always are standalone, sometimes funny, a little bit emotional. But in good One Piece fashion. This is something that they love doing. They pandered to their fans a little bit. And, you know, honestly, I don't mind being pandered to when it comes to One Piece because the characters and their relationships are what's important. And One Piece Film Red gave us characters that we haven't seen for hundreds of episodes making an appearance and being there to stay, having an emotional impact upon us. I know, Yanni, when you went to watch it with me, you had no fucking idea who any of these characters were, but you could definitely tell that the One Piece fans in the theater were excited, maybe too much so. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely true. I really enjoyed the music and just getting to see some of these characters that I've heard a lot about. Obviously, it didn't hit me in the nostalgic place of having been through so many episodes and recognizing characters that come back into the movie, but I had a good time with it, for sure. And you still have the music saved to your soundtrack, don't you? 
True, yeah. Every once in a while, Uta hits me with a banger for my run, and that's very appreciated. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, in the fall, we got a bunch of movies that actually haven't been released for us yet, so we haven't gotten to see them. That includes Suzume, which is the new Makoto Shinkai movie that I think is coming out in the next few months, so we'll get to see that soon. The Kaguya-sama First Kiss That Never Ends movie, which I did get to see actually the first 20 minutes of Anime NYC. That's coming out next month. SAO Progressive 2, which we are going to see also in a few weeks. Yeah, baby. Somehow I got talked into doing that. Somehow you agree. <laughs> Don't fuck with me. <laughs> yeah, so it opens up in the US on February 3rd. For anyone who hasn't seen the Progressive movies, if you at all liked SAO, particularly the beginning of SAO, because I know that nobody really liked the end of SAO, or God help you if you did, you'll probably enjoy the Progressive movies because it's just a retelling of the Aincrad arc, much better paced and from Asuna's point of view now. And uh, yeah, I think we're both, or at least I'm excited to see it. I don't know how you feel about it. I don't know if excited is the right word, but I pretty much take any excuse to see anime in theaters, so... We'll give it a shot. We'll see how it goes. And the final film of the year was the first Slam Dunk, which I have not heard news about releasing in the West. That's the Slam Dunk movie that's actually mostly CGI, I think. And that's done really, really well in Japan financially. So it'll be interesting to see if that makes it over here. All right, let's do a quick section on our overall thoughts on the Crunchyroll nominations. So those just dropped. Uh, and there are a few things that I at least wanted to mention. So the first is that the live award ceremony is not going to be held in Tokyo. I think we mentioned this on a news segment at some point throughout the year. It seems like in general, they've tried from year to year to legitimize the awards. I think we both think that that is a good thing, even if we disagree with a lot of the winners and the nominations and the format and whatever else. It is good to have awards like this for the industry, for discourse and whatnot. I think them having it live in Tokyo feels like a step and it still feels weird that last year they didn't even have a show. They just, it seems like forgot about hosting one and just announced the winners. So it's nice to see that coming back in a big way. We'll see what they do with the show now that it's going to be in Japan. The nominations themselves just got released and it comes with two things that I have to mention that I hate and then you can add on to anything that you want to. So one is the big decision that they made to make fall 2022 shows ineligible and push them to next year's awards. The stated reason for this is that they want the judges to be able to watch the entire show and then submit their nominations based on more than just the first few episodes. In the past, they've had fall included, so wasn't this already an issue? Also, couldn't you just hold the awards slightly later to let people watch more of the fall? Like, there's no reason it has to be that the awards are held in February, like the Oscars are later in order to basically avoid this. So I don't know. To me, it makes no sense to have people think about fall 2022 shows in 2024 for the 2023 awards and also have this celebration of anime for the year that excludes one of the best seasons of the year and just 25% of the year. So to me, it's pretty strange. I agree with that. It seems ridiculous considering, as you said, that fall was far and away the strongest season of the entire year. To then discount all of those shows and then stack them against shows coming out for all of now 2023 makes no sense. And is this going to be now a precedent that we're just never going to exclude the fall? I don't know. It just seems really weird to have to consider something you saw that long ago. And now probably we'll get sequel seasons to some of these shows. So people will be biased by all of the sequel seasons and what we get from them to now consider a year from now. It's very strange. Needless to say, our awards now will include fall because we are 
normal, rational people. The second was the actual nominations themselves. I think this is a little bit more expected, but naturally they suffer from a huge lack of diversity and they really favor the popular shonen franchises. This is always the case, but I think it feels even worse this year because of the lack of all of the fall series. Demon Slayer, Attack on Titan, again, in so many categories, despite maybe, at least in my opinion, slightly weaker seasons than before. Spy Family, as much as I love it, is actually nominated for every single category it is eligible for. Like, every single one, other than, like, best movie and things like that. That just doesn't do it for me, you know? So, all in all, I think it's kind of classic award show stuff, but I think the weird Crunchyroll rules, the inconsistent categories and nomination procedures, they once again switched up a lot of the categories from last year. At the end of the day, they give rent material to everybody on the internet and to us, that's nice, but I feel like it is our duty to at least say the things that we didn't like about the nominations every year. Yeah, I mean, I think in classic fashion on this podcast, I'm going to be a little more nuanced than you when I talk about it, (laughs) but... (laughs) I think given the seasons they're including, they have done a better job of making the nominations a little more diverse than in previous years. I mean, for example, Lacorus Recoil is getting some love, and Akebi's actually made it into the best animation category, which was super surprising to me. I did not expect to see that on there. So clearly some judges decided that they wanted to come out swinging this time. They didn't fucking nominate Kaguya and Made in Abyss for anime of the year, and they nominated a bunch of other bullshit. So until we get judge spots <laughs> Crunchyroll, I'm going to keep ranting about this. That is fair. I mean, it's also nice that they've chosen to highlight less well-known works through the best original anime category. That didn't exist in previous years. So it's nice to see that there. It's nice that they've also removed extra shonen-y categories that were sometimes superfluous, given that they already have a ton of shonen. Like, they had a best fight scene category last year, which was just stupid. Now, as you said... There's an overwhelming overrepresentation of big shonen like Demon Slayer, underrepresentation of Made in Abyss and Kaguya, which you just mentioned, and the continued presence of weird categories. Like, what the fuck is this must protect at all cost character thing? Like, just because Anya came out this year and just because Kage is like a leftover from 2021, I understand the desire to be flexible and have fun with the categories, but it still makes this award show seem a little less legitimate than it could be. If the categories were standardized and the picks had a better breadth to them. Agreed. All right. So with that, let's get into our award show now that we're almost an hour into the podcast as usual. <laughs> so this is going to be the same as the past two years. The one change that we're making is swapping out the best antagonist category for a character design category. Oh, man, we're basically Crunchyroll at this point. <laughs> I think we both felt like antagonists leaned a little bit too much to specific type of shows, kind of what like Ravi just said. Character design lets us consider more options. It's a little bit more of a technical category. Last year, we did make a change from the first year where we added in an original soundtrack category. So maybe the tradition here is that we're just refining everything by one category a year until we just hit the perfect awards selection. We'll have to see. You're telling me that people should listen to our first award show? I don't know about that one because that's like the second episode we ever made and it's probably not that good. <laughs> yeah. I think last year's is maybe okay. <laughs> so just to recap, our awards categories are then going to be opening, ending, original soundtrack, voice acting, performance, supporting character, main character, character design, animation, director, and anime of the year. So we'll just go through each category and alternate going through our contenders and our picks and talking about our choices. So we're going to get started. Before we get started, I'm springing something on Ravi here. 
which is a personal rule that I made myself. <laughs> what is this fucking like some death game I'm playing out here? I just have to follow your rules as they come up? Like, what is this? No, this is my personal rule for me. I don't care what you do. <laughs> personal rule, only nominate Kaguya, every category. <laughs> so I felt like I wanted to not make picks for categories in which a show from that same franchise had already won or I had already voted it for a previous year. And that's basically to just say, can I just pick Ishigami for best supporting character every year that there is a series of Kaguya? Like, yeah, that's my fucking guy, but I'm trying to avoid doing that. And it's only going to apply in a few categories, but I felt like I at least wanted to avoid just getting repetitive with picking series from the same franchise. So just a heads up that that's what I'll be doing. Yeah, I mean, trying to one-up yourself here. But now that I'm looking at my list, I noticed that, yeah, I also follow that category. But that's only because I didn't watch some of these shows last year. <laughs> well, that's fair. All right. So with that, let's get into our awards. Ravi, why don't you kick it off with your best opening of the year? All right. So I was going to start with anime of the year. So it's just... <laughs> That's like in our mailbag episode when you were like, yeah, top five characters. And then you start talking. And then I'm like, wait, are you starting at one or five? And you were like, fuck. <laughs> like you start with not anime of the year so that people listen to the rest of the episode. I'm here for our fans. They want to listen to it as soon as possible. Okay. I think an unwritten agreement between us is that we also wanted to be able to figure out each other's picks or a competition at least. Yeah. So, uh, how are we going to do this? Are we going to say whether or not we guessed correctly? Or? So I actually didn't end up writing all of mine down. I just have in my head what I think you're going to pick. So we either can do it after every category, just at the end, say what was like expected or unexpected or how that went. And we can just take it like that. But we've okay. tried to do a little theory of mind here. All right. Well, this is the first one. And I think we both have this one. Yeah, probably. My opening <laughs> is Kickback by Kenshi Yonezu from Chainsaw yeah. Man. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I knew one it. for one, baby. <laughs> So this opening was so hard to select, to decide on. And that's because this year's selection of openings was unreal. I have so many honorable mentions to this list that it's probably going to take another 10 minutes just to describe those. So let me actually first tell you what I loved about Kickback. I, outside of anime, and you know this, I watch a lot of live action and I am a huge fan of cinema. I love movies. I love watching movies. Sounds weird coming after having not watched any of those anime movies. <laughs> but Kickback is an amazing song that is matched with even better animation, in my opinion. The references put forth at the beginning of this opening are incredible. They reference so many different works that are important to cinematic history, are important to the director, and even have references for within the show. We see everything from works by the Coen brothers to works by Quentin Tarantino. And 
Anybody who's seen these films, anybody who's a film buff, seeing these references for the first time when you watch it, my mouth just dropped open when I watched that opening for the first time. Because, yeah, I didn't know all of the references, but the ones that you do catch on to, you're like, you know that fucking Leonardo DiCaprio meme of him pointing at the fucking screen? (laughs) That's like straight up what I was doing. I was like, oh my God, like, look at this. The other thing this opening does so well is showcase the relationships between all of the characters in Chainsaw Man. Just in that one clip in the movie theater when the characters are sitting down, the order that they're sitting down, the relationships are on display as they interact with each other. And throughout the opening, you see that again and again and again, ending with that beautiful moment where Denji and Power are just fucking around dancing and Aki is over there rolling his eyes. It's such a beautiful opening from start to finish. All right, I can also talk about Kickbag. We can just merge it a little bit here since I also picked that as my opening of the year. And I don't know if you remember this, but last year on the awards episode, I said, damn, I really wish the second opening to Ranking of Kings had come out within the year and not for the second core because it would have easily been my pick for opening of the year. And I even said at the time, I don't really know if anything is going to surpass this in the next year. Little did I know that my boy Shingo Yamashita, who is the fucking goat at these openings, would just come through and deliver even more than he did in the Ranking of Kings opening. When I say he's the goat at openings, I actually mean that because we've seen a few of his stuff now in the previous year or two from the first Jujutsu Kaisen opening to the second Ranking of Kings opening, the first Urusei Yatsura opening, which also made it on my contenders list, to Kickback, which is my personal favorite of his But what I think is amazing about his work is that, of course, it has a beautiful animation style and usually pick good music and all that kind of stuff. But he gets always the appeal and the theme of whatever series he is directing the opening for. You know, if he's doing Ranking of Kings, he's interplaying between light and dark, really using shadows to highlight how the different characters are trying to be better versions of themselves or if they're falling into darkness or whatever they're feeling emotionally. If he's doing the Urusei Yatsura opening, he's really highlighting the retro feel of adapting a series from 30 years ago into the modern era, really highlighting Lum as the first waifu and Atari trying to get away from her. When he's doing Chainsaw Man, he gets that it needs to be crazy fast-paced, that it needs to have all of these movie references because Fujimoto is a huge, huge movie buff, and that has influenced a lot of his manga. And he bakes that into this gorgeously animated fight scene so he is just the best at what he does and combining that with this amazing song it was just like a easy probably the easiest category i had to pick honestly really because i absolutely fucking love this opening despite how good honestly some of the other ones that we got this year were and i think just shingo yamashita almost sometimes gets the core of a show better than the show itself i almost think that this opening to Chainsaw Man understands the appeal and what Chainsaw Man is better than the show itself does. I knew you were going to pick it with your little name-dropping bitch out here. (laughs) This was the hardest category for me to pick, and I said that. And I don't understand how this was easy for you. I mean, my honorable mentions. All right. Your boy Kong Ming. One of the most fucking unreal openings I had seen all year. It's just surreal to watch this, like... 
historical reverse isekai come through and have an amazing dance with a fucking hilarious song attached to it that you pointed out is some like fucking Hungarian dance song or something like that. I fucking vibed to that when I was studying abroad at the clubs in Hungary and well, while I was studying abroad and also going to the clubs, I was not studying in the clubs. <laughs> Just characters dancing in an OP is always a W in my book. So that was also on my list of nominations. Spy Family's season one opening was incredible. I think that also really showcased the feel of the show, having this cartoonish first half to it, which is from Anya's perspective, perhaps, and then the second half to it with the change in the song quality as it starts to show the more realistic, darker elements of the lives that the two parents lead. I also had Mixed Nuts on mine. <laughs> is it called Mixed Nuts? All right, I don't know. It's the called Mixed Nuts, things. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Like Chorus Recoil's opening, I thought it was just a really cute opening that I think beautifully showcased the relationship between Chisato and Takina. Yeah, you like that butt slap. <laughs> I did love that butt slap. I was just about to talk about that. That moment where Chisato like playfully fucking butt slaps Takina and Takina fucking full kicks her was hilarious. I love that moment every time. My dress up, darling. I know last year I gave the best opening award to Horimiya. And that was because it did exactly what My Dress Up Darling also does. It really showcases the relationship between the two main characters in a beautiful way, while also giving us this like cute, relaxing, kind of exciting opening. I'm trying to think of what I actually picked last year, and now I'm blanking on it. Okay, well, whatever. What the fuck did I pick last year? Okay, I'm going <laughs> to look it up. <laughs> so while he's looking that up, Aoashi's second opening was beautiful. Also Absolutely online. beautiful. The way that it used CGI in the opening was actually done really well. And most people get annoyed by CGI. But the way that the CGI is used for the characters running while also playing with light, if you'll notice, the backgrounds are often changing in their light intensity, tone, hue, whatever, where you see... Aoi running through the field at sunset. You see his relationships with the other characters as the sky is blue overhead and they're playing their matches. I love the play that they had with the sun and the lighting juxtaposed with the actual characters playing. Okay, last year I picked the Dragon Maid opening. That's actually what I picked. <laughs> I haven't even seen that, so maybe I will choose that next year as my favorite opening. <laughs> Akiba made war. I said that this was a bait and switch and this 100% was a bait and switch. The preview was actually really cute. And then you get to the opening and you're like, huh, this is like more of a heavy metal soundtrack or like, you know, this is like hard rock. And there's a moment in it where it suddenly starts switching and you start getting this very suspenseful vibe. So I think it just showed what the show was all about in a really nice way. Last few, Kaguya-sama season three. Kaguya's opening for the second season was the best far and away. However, this season, and I know you're going to shit on me for this, I told you immediately after watching it for the first time, I was like, this opening is so mid. It really grew on me. I knew it was going to. <laughs> <laughs> it really grew on me. This is the thing with us, that I will tell you how I'm feeling in the moment, and you'll be like, no, 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 you're wrong. And I'll be like, no, but like, <laughs> how did you feel the first time you watched it? And you're like, well, I mean, like, I don't know. I can't say anything about it because I know how I feel now. I'm like, shut the fuck up. Just tell me how you felt the first time you watched it. That part where Kaguya's running through the different scene changes is really, really good. That also, just by part. the way, you did fucking vote Daddy Daddy Do as your favorite opening in 2020. So you already Which got it. Don't worry. That's the second season opening. Oh, that is. 
You had watched the first few episodes. Oh, okay. I'm great. I'm good. We're all good. We're all good. I was like really fucking sad that I didn't choose that one. Uh, the last two, Uncle from Another World. This is a surprise pick. I don't know if anyone has actually watched this show. If you haven't, it doesn't fucking matter. Just go watch the opening. The opening is hilarious. It really showcases 8-bit animation, which is something that I love in art, while also having this fucking old Ojisan character dancing. And it also showcases different RPG and video game elements throughout the opening, which is just fantastic for any fans of video games. Finally, I'm not going to really talk about this one, Attack on Titan Season 4 Part 2. The fucking opening is, again, a heavy rock, almost metal banger. And so I know I enjoyed that. I know you probably didn't. That one also grew on me a little bit, but just generally like the hard metal rock openings don't really do it for me. I think this will be brief because you actually covered almost all of mine, I think, except for one. So I also had Awashi's second opening. Much like the show, it was... Really beautiful, as you said, but also just really brought me back to my playing days. I love the song and I love the animation. It was a huge step above the first Coors opening. So I love that. I still go back and watch that. I also had Mixed Nuts on here, which was Spy Family's first opening. I just love the 1950s feel of it, the cartoony nature of it, the style switch, all that's great. I had Ayu on here, which is the Urusei Yatsura first opening, just because Shingo Yamashita, the goat. Uh, and then I also had your boy Kong Ming's opening because it's just honestly an amazing song choice with characters dancing. The one I had on here that you didn't mention was actually Mob Psycho 100 Season 3's opening one. I always love Mob's openings, and I still think I prefer Season 2's over Season 3's, but Season 3 was definitely up there for me, and it has a lot of really cool inventive animation thrown in there it's done by mob choir which was specifically made for the show so all the kind of cool passionate stuff you normally see from mob the moment that really got me though is at the end of the opening where like reagan puts his arm on mob's shoulder and then they like transition through like mob growing up showing how he's mentored him throughout all these years really hit me a little bit like that was very very sweet so it's a really good opening as well but that's my list of nominations yeah, I think that was by far the hardest decision I had for this entire thing. I am in disbelief that you thought it was easy. <laughs> anyway, on that note, let's move on to the ending. All right, am I going first for this one? We're alternating. You are going first. This one was really difficult for me because there were a lot that I could have picked. I settled on Kaguya-sama season three ending. Not the special one that was in my list of contenders, but just the regular one, Heart Wautage. And... It just does a lot of things that I really like. I like the song. I like the animation. I think they did a great job with it. There are two things that I think I want to highlight about it. One is that it tells a complete story. I always love when openings and endings do this. And they really rift on Starship Troopers, which is this random older sci-fi movie that I have not seen. But they put the Kaguya characters into this Starship Troopers setting and show this whole scene where... Shiragane is trying to save Kaguya, basically. And then you find out that he's, of course, dreaming and Kaguya wakes him up and it's really cute. I also like that it harkens back to season one's ending, which had also a sci-fi setting that was actually a riff on a Miyazaki movie. But that was from Kaguya's perspective as she was dreaming and Shiragane was also kind of saving her with a bunch of planes and I don't exactly remember. So I liked what they did with the full story. And I also liked that it harkened back to and connected with season one's ending. As I mentioned, 
my other contenders were my nonfiction, which was the special Kaguya-sama. I think it was episode five's ending where they had all the characters in like this rap battle that came out of nowhere that was done by one animator, Creek, who did a fucking amazing, amazing job on it. I was pretty close to picking that. And then everything else was actually just various Chainsaw Man endings. <laughs> like there are tons that I could have picked because I love a lot of the Chainsaw Man endings. The fact that they picked 11 or 12 different ones, one for each episode and got different animators and different big artists to work on them was amazing. I fucking love Chainsaw Blood by Von D. I love Fight Song by Eve. I could just fucking keep listing these and say that I really like them. And then the other three that I just had were Core 2 of Spy Families ending, just showing the family kind of going through their everyday life. I had Mob Psycho 103's ending Cobalt, just because it uses that really cool kind of glass art style that they're used for, the stained glass art style. And then finally, I also had Cyberpunk Endrunner's ending Let You Down, because just really, really enjoyable, stylish, really fit the show, but ultimately landed on Kaguya, which I did not pick two years ago for ending, so it was eligible. <laughs> random fucking self-rule <laughs> what do you think i picked this is one of the ones i struggled on i am between you picking my nonfiction, the rap battle kaguya ending between picking the imer chainsaw man ending and between picking the cyberpunk edge runners ending and i don't know which of the three you picked and this is actually kind of how it was for a lot of these categories where i'm like <laughs> i can narrow it down to like two or three but i don't know after that so or I'm just wrong and you pick something else. <laughs> My guess for you was that you were going to pick the Kaguya one because yeah. I knew that you loved the story that was told throughout that. I don't know if this is two for two, but I did pick my nonfiction. Great pick. <laughs> Honestly, maybe this is a little bit of hyperbole. I think my nonfiction was one of the best endings I've ever seen in anime. I think a lot of people felt that way. That is, I think, for me, saying a lot. And I'm not even sure of that statement myself. I think you said it was like episode five. That means I watched four episodes of an ending that I liked. It was okay. I enjoyed the original ending to season three of Kaguya. And then we get to the rap battle episode. And the rap battle episode is already one of my favorite episodes of Kaguya. It's so good. First of all, it does something great, which is it gives backstory to Hayasaka which is one of my favorite Kaguya characters. And we really haven't had a lot of backstory to Hayasaka. In addition to that, it is fucking hilarious seeing Shiragane try to rap originally. I love the relationship that Shiragane and Chika have, especially when they keep going through this joke of Chika having to teach Shiragane <laughs> literally everything until her younger sister comes to them and then Shiragane is apparently amazing at everything which was in a later episode do you remember that that was fucking hilarious I remember that but actually my favorite skit related to that is the one where she's trying to teach him the Sora dance and he obviously yeah. is being shit as usual and then she's like you lied to me I can't teach you anymore I've done this too many times already and she fucking storms out and then Kaguya rolls in and she's like oh I can teach you dance is just a about following the movements and Chico walks back in and she's like, you fucking replaced me, you bitch. This girl doesn't understand dance at all. You have to emote. And that's one of my favorite skits from season three. Yeah. It's so fucking good. The one where she was teaching him to sing, I think earlier, uh, I think that was probably so season good. two. I think that one was hilarious. And then we get to the rap one. This one was also fantastic because Shiragane singing sounds just like one of the fucking demons from Jujutsu Kaisen. 
It's either Jujutsu Kaisen or Chainsaw Man. I can't remember which one, but it's one of them. And it sounds fucking hilarious. They're at the same show, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. And then they get to the ending of this, and they actually have a rap battle with Shiragane and Chika. And I was like, oh, fuck yes. This is already amazing. And then Hayasaka joins in, and I'm like, oh my god. The artistic style with the backgrounds changing, which is already one of Kaguya's highlights. And so I am sitting on cloud nine, finishing this episode. And then we get this fucking ending. This ending was unreal. They completely animated a new ending with original character designs, with the characters looking different, slightly older. I love the way that they look. And having the two actual voice actors for Shiragane and Chika rapping, which is a great rap too. I was functionally losing my fucking mind. I have listened to that ending maybe seven times so far. And also shown it to my partner and listened to it another three times by making her just sit on the couch and just watch this. One time without subtitles, one time with subtitles, one time just to confirm. I fucking love this ending. That's when you know you love something. It's when you're like, just come watch this. No context, just sit down and watch it so I can watch you watch it. Yeah. Kaguya, some production issues in season three aside, you can tell has a super talented and passionate team behind it it's actually a lot of ex shaft animators and maybe even director if i'm not mistaken and they have a history of this i mean we all remember the chica dance ending from season one and i think people were a little disappointed that with how great season two was there was no special ending and had kind of maybe given up hope that we were going to get something else as big as the chica dance and they definitely surpassed expectations with my nonfiction. i think it was unbelievable. I found out that I had somehow downloaded the song already, and then I tried to add it to my playlist again, and I was like, why the fuck do I already have this? And it was just because I liked the song so much when it randomly came up on Spotify for me. Now, honorable mentions. Cyberpunk Edgerunners. I was so close to picking Cyberpunk Edgerunners if my nonfiction had not shown up in episode five or whatever it was. Had a feeling. If you haven't done this yet, go look up Cyberpunk Edgerunner's ending on YouTube. You are in for a special surprise. I'm not going to say anything more about that. Just go look it up. That ending was fantastic as it is. And the thing that exists on YouTube is even more special. That's another reason why I was very close to putting this as my top. Chainsaw Man, episodes 9, 11, and 12 specifically. 9 was the one which is, mm, spoiler alert for Chainsaw Man. So skip ahead like 15 seconds. (laughs) <laughs> Nine was the one where you see Jimeno, Jimeno, right? Jimeno? Jimeno, whatever. Where you <laughs> see her essentially dying in the ending and like fading into dust with this bleak color palette. It was incredible. And the soundtrack was also amazing. Yeah. 11 and 12, 12 specifically. 12 was yeah. the beautiful one where they continued the storyline with Aki Denji and yeah. Power going shopping That's and the then evil having one. a meal together. And that is the Eve one. Also, shout out to Chef PK, who in one of the recent videos recreated the entire ending meal just because of the fact that Aki smiled in that ending. That was very, very cute. Very cute. And finally, Spy Family's Core 2 ending, which you already mentioned. I think it was beautiful that they just animated the characters living their daily life, which is something you don't get to see a lot in the show because you do want to move the plot a little forward, that you don't get to see a lot of those quieter moments where the characters are just spending time together. And that was absolutely beautiful. Also, the direction for that is fantastic as the camera is panning around the room and 
time is changing at the same time. I think that was just fantastic direction. How's the director from your favorite movie, Pompo the Cinephile? <laughs> I'm serious. I will say that that movie was really good, except for all of its failed potential. <laughs> okay, so that does it for our ending picks. So let's go into original soundtrack. What have you got for me? All right. This one was still a little difficult. Not as much as the opening. But at the end of the day, I think there's only one of these, maybe two of these, that could actually win this category. I'm going to say that I'm sorry, my boy Kevin Penkin. I listened to the entire Maiden Abyss season two soundtrack, even though I haven't fucking watched the show yet. But I couldn't give it to him because Cyberpunk Edge Runners came out. Akira Yamaoka, the composer for Cyberpunk Edge Runners, absolute fucking banger. This was a genius, genius OST to a show that has these dark technological sci-fi elements to it to then add in a level of music that adds quality, that adds texture to the show, that brings us deeper into the life within Night City was just incredible. I have listened to this soundtrack dozens of times outside of watching this show, which for me is something that means that this soundtrack is special. Some particular songs within this soundtrack have really hit me. I listen to them walking down the street and it just really makes me reminisce about this show. I have never really wanted to play this video game, but for some reason this OST is the one thing that might bring me into actually playing this video game because I just want to re-experience what the life of Night City is like after listening to this soundtrack. It's not my pick, but it is on my high, high list of contenders. I do love that soundtrack. I think if there's one thing that's amazing and that I think we can agree is amazing about Cyberpunk Edge Runners, it is the setting of Night City and the vibe and the style that that series gives off and what Trigger was able to do to make that come to life. And the soundtrack is a huge reason why. So easily one of my favorites of the year as well. Honorable mentions for that one. So the two that I'm between for you, I couldn't decide which ones that you were going to pick for this. Honorable mention number one is obviously going to be Kevin Penkin's Maiden Abyss. Kevin Penkin is just an amazing composer. If we can ever get him on the pod, I would fucking love that. <laughs> the man sounds amazing and he's just a genius when it comes to music composing for this. The Maiden Abyss soundtrack, just like in season one, gives you all of the elements you need to build this epic fantasy. It has these sweeping, sweeping orchestral arrangements that literally in combination with the backgrounds, which are already very, very colorful and in-depth and bring life to the environment, the soundtrack does the exact same thing. Between that one and Bochi the Rock, I wasn't sure which one you picked. Bochi the Rock also, I think, had a fantastic soundtrack. The album itself is like some fucking number one on the charts in Japan or something like that. Yeah, the Kesaku Band album is like very, very high in terms of sales and streams and all that kind of stuff, which honestly is super cool to see for a series to write so much original music for an actual band in the show and then have it be insanely popular is really cool. It is really cool. Last two, Demon Slayer Season 2. Yuki Kajira is one of my favorite composers of all time. Anybody who knows me will know that I have a love-hate relationship with SAO. She also had done the OST for SAO, which was fantastic. And finally, I can't not put this in here, your boy Kong Ming. Your boy Kong Ming, much like Bochi, also created a number of new songs just for the show. Also had an amazing opening. So I think it definitely deserves a mention here. 
You know, I'm really shocked that One Piece Red is not in here for you. Honorable mention One Piece Red, <laughs> One Piece Film Red. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that one, actually. So <laughs> the original songs in that one were fantastic. I definitely have to give it up to Uta and the voice actor for singing these things. Also, huge shout out to Ahmed Lee for covering the songs in English. You know that I'm just fucking spitballing right now because, yeah, I really did like the OST for One Piece Film Red. I have that one specifically on my gym playlist and not my liked songs because I love that just hitting you right in the fucking end of your stride when you're, like, banging out the last, like, quarter mile and then fucking you start hearing Uta singing. I love that shit. All right. So my pick for best original soundtrack was Kevin Pankin for Maiden Abyss 2. I love the soundtrack to the first Maiden Abyss. I think it's one of the reasons why I fell in love with the show so much is that it felt like it was filling a hole for me of just straight immersive fantasy that felt like you were exploring this amazing world where you really didn't know what was going to happen. And the soundtrack really contributed to that feeling. And I have some of those songs saved on my soundtrack playlist and I go and listen to them from time to time. And I was honestly, I don't know if concerned if he would be able to do just as memorable of a job in the second season, because I know he's very talented, but there are some amazing moments just in terms of feelings from the different soundtracks for the different layers in season one, or from like that very first soundtrack where Reg and Rico are like looking at the sun rising over the abyss and in season two i was a little bit more worried because they are only in one layer they're only in one village so there's kind of less to play with in terms of the breadth of the compositions you can maybe write just based off of the scenery switching and i think kevin penkin pretty much equaled what he did with season one it's such a memorable soundtrack that i do go back and listen to and just like season one it gets you immersed in the story right away with the sense of wonder and sense of exploration so that was easily my pick for soundtrack my contenders were cyberpunk as i already said i actually also had kensuke ushio for chainsaw man's soundtrack i really really like kensuke ushio and i liked a lot of chainsaw man's soundtrack but i think some of his work is much stronger in things like a silent voice i have a lot of a silent voice soundtracks saved because those are really memorable and really hit with the emotional moments but i still liked his work here and then the other two nominations that i had were two music oriented shows which wrote original music one which you already mentioned which is boshi the rock Tomoki Kikuya wrote a ton of original music that the band actually got to play and sing. And again, that album is out and very popular. And I have all of it fucking downloaded, obviously, because I love Bochi the Rock. And the other one, which I'm also surprised you didn't mention, was Inuo's soundtrack done by Yoshihide Otomo. Actually, did I fucking not put Inuo in our movie category? That is a fucking oversight. No, you actually didn't. <laughs> I actually didn't. <laughs> wow that is a huge oversight we both saw Inuo we both really liked Inuo especially the music and all the Masaki Yuasa direction I can't fucking believe I forgot to put that <laughs> even though it's in my nominations but there you fucking go <laughs> oh, all right man. so hit me with your VA performance I know that this is gonna be the same <laughs> for us usually we try to keep these a surprise so that we talk about them on the podcast we could have genuine reactions Ravi was finishing Licorice Recoil he texted me and he was like, 
Chika Anzai's performance is fucking amazing as Chisado. If she doesn't win VA of the year, I don't know what I would do. How could anyone even come close to that? And I just texted him back, don't steal my pick, you bitch. Because <laughs> you know how this works. I keep a running list of contenders for every category throughout the year. I update it. I switch them around. I've had this shit on lock for months. And I'm like, Ravi, I know you're just making these decisions at the end. <laughs> don't fucking do this. <laughs> but truly, her performance as Shisato was amazing. It really brought such a fun character to life that was so energetic knew she didn't have that much time to live and just wanted to get the best out of life, hang out with the people that she cared for, have this really sweet relationship, bringing Takina out of her comfort zone. And I really thought it was a fucking unbelievable VA performance. I actually liked a lot of other VA performances that I think were close, which Ravi might not agree because he creamed himself so much to Chika Anzai's performance. So let me quickly run through those. One that I was very close to picking was Misaki Kudo's performance as Fabuta in Maiden Abyss. There's actually this story that she ruined her vocal cords, I don't think permanently, but damaged them kind of seriously, trying to portray all of the screaming and grief that Fapita goes through. I don't really want to spoil it for you, but a lot of the latter half of the season is going through Fapita as kind of this antagonist, non-antagonist role and trying to make amends and get vengeance for the past. So Misaki Kuno really put her all into that role and I really, really respected what she did. And then the last three that I had were Yoshina Aoyama as Hitori Goto or Bochi in Bochi the Rock. I think just the way she was able to portray all of Bochi's breakdowns with the social anxiety just really added to the comedy of the show and really nailed all of the timing along with the animation, the direction. I had Ifaruz. I love Ifaruz. I actually voted her last year for her performance as Jolene. I thought she was amazing again as Jolene, but actually also amazing as Power in Chainsaw Man. I fucking love Power. I know you don't agree with me that she's best girl in Chainsaw Man, but absolutely is. Like, get this Makima bullshit out of here. It's all about Power. This man just likes those smelly girls. <laughs> and last one was Hiroshi Kamiya as Ataru, who's the protagonist in Urusei Yatsura. He plays a lot of my favorite roles, whether it's Aragi in Monogatari, whether it's Levi in Attack on Titan, but there were just so many good voice acting performances in Urusei Yatsura. I think if you go back to our Fall First Impressions, I literally just listed all of them because they're all huge name VAs, so I feel like I had to at least put someone in this category from the show, given that it's basically the main reason I'm still watching this. Yeah. I mean, I think those are all very, very strong contenders. As you have already said, my winner was by far, not even close, Chika Anzai, who is Chisato. I am generally very attuned to voice acting when it comes to shows. I like listening to the differences between the Japanese dub versus the English dub. I just like the art of voice acting. I think it's just it takes a lot of skill to do. And when I was watching Lycoris Recoil, I was blown away by Chika Anza's performance. She does something that I would never have been able to even imagine in bringing Chisato to life. The way that she's able to inflect, to have fun, to 
bring life to these small mundane moments that otherwise and other voice actors would just not care about. It seemed like she was really enjoying and personifying Chisato's personality. I just think back to it and I'm pulling these out of thin air, but like random moments, the moments where Chisato even off screen just decides to sit down into the car and she makes that noise that like everyone makes when they sit down in the car, which is like the, and then like (laughs) immediately switches into looking and talking to whoever else is in the car in this joyous way with this like funny kind of very lighthearted personality. I just could not believe how good this acting performance was. I will say if I'm kind of creeping myself to her, yeah, it's not the first time someone's going to tell me that because my partner watched me watch <laughs> like Chorus Recoil. She was working while I'm doing this. I literally would unplug my headphones and be like, no, 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 hold on. Just just listen to this. Just listen to this. And she'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's just this girl talking. And I'd be like, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't get it. <laughs> and so I just, I absolutely love this performance. If she doesn't win at the Crunchyroll Awards, I am going to absolutely fucking nuke Crunchyroll. <laughs> He's kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I am just kidding, FBI. Honorable mentions, Aoi Koga from Kaguya. You actually saw Aoi at Anime NYC, and I did not. And so I'm kind of jealous. I voted her in 2020, the first year we did the awards for her performance. Like We've talked about this offline. I think she's amazing at Kaguya. Like Those scenes where she has to switch between different versions of Kaguya and do different interpretations of her internal feelings. I think she's just really, really good at that. And she's an amazing voice actress as well. So glad you're mentioning yeah. her. Uh, a second pick from Kage, actually Konomi Kohara, who is uh, Chika's voice actor. Again, I think this is a fantastic performance. Chika is just another character who I think is very, very difficult to voice act, similar to Chisato, because she changes personalities so rapidly. One of my favorite characters in this past season and throughout all of Kaguya is actually Chika. In the first season, you get this idea that Chika is this kind of airheaded girl who isn't very serious a lot, and therefore she comes across as this comedic character all the time. In seasons two and season three, there is a little more depth that you get to see to Chika's personality, especially when you see her interacting more with Ishigami and interacting more with Shiragane. Through those interactions, you see that there are moments where she gets angry, where she is sad. And those really bring life to her character. And the switches that Konami Kohara had to do as Chika, I think, are still incredible. It's funny that you mentioned the Anime NYC event because, as you mentioned, Ayakaga was there. But also they had messages from the rest of the voice acting cast. And then, actually, I went to another Kage event at Japan Society a few months before that where they aired the first episode of season three before it actually came to streaming. TFTI. You were invited. You just didn't want to come because you hadn't got up. <laughs> and there they also showed a bunch of voice messages and other videos of events that the cast had been at. So I actually feel like I'm intimately familiar with the cast of Kaguya, like more so than I am with any other VA cast for any other show. And it's pretty cool to actually feel like, oh, yeah, like I kind of know the people behind the characters that I love. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt for Demon Slayer, actually, because I saw a lot of the English dub cast at things like Comic-Con and Anime NYC Yeah, we were there together, you bitch. (laughs) I'm not saying you don't know that. I'm just saying I do know that. That's how I feel about it, you fucking asshole. So, my best girl, actually, from Demon Slayer, do you think it's Magua? You mean from Chainsaw Man? Chainsaw Man, yeah. 
Demon Slayer fucking sucks. I don't actually know. I didn't give that much thought. But when I was talking about how much I liked power, you were like, no, but Makima's hotter. I actually think it's probably Himeno. It's either Himeno or um, the girl who's always stressed and overworked, Kobeni. It's one of the two. My favorite girl from Chainsaw Man is actually Kobeni. And Karen Takahashi... I think delivers an incredible performance as Kobeni. Another character that's very difficult to do because you have to constantly do this register that's high pitched, a lot of screaming, a lot of like very, very emphatic moments, but also mixed with these very, very shy interludes when you see Kobeni more quiet and talking about random shit like why she's still part of public safety because she wants her bonus or some shit like that. Kobeni's the most relatable character in maybe all of Chainsaw Man because in the entire run, the running gag is that she literally like can't quit. They even show that in the anime, right? She wants to leave and she can't because she fucking needs to pay rent and it is played off as a gag, but it's also just very real at the same time. So she's fucking great. I'm going to say this right now. If Kobani dies, I am going to have a fucking nuclear meltdown. Don't say anything. I know you know <laughs> further ahead. This guy's a fucking shitty, dirty manga reader now. And so he knows these things. And so he makes faces every time I say this shit. <laughs> so finally, I don't know how you can't mention this one. Atsumi Tanizaki for Anya in Spy Family. Just an incredible performance. I mean, True. I know this is probably going to win because the fucking masses have decided that Anya is the best character ever created in anime. However, <laughs> her performance here, I think, is just fantastic. She really is able to do that childish voice, the hilarious antics of Anya really well. I think Waku Waku has become a theme song for anime this past year, and her voice acting performance delivering that, it was just incredible. Definitely. All right, now we're getting into the categories where I actually have no idea what the fuck you picked, so this is going to make this more interesting. So give me your supporting character choice. All right, my supporting character... It's going to be Yu Ishigami from Kaguya. That makes sense. <laughs> and to give context, this was my pick two years ago also. Yeah. So. <laughs> I am not going to lie that I think the supporting character category was actually pretty weak this year. I don't even have that many honorable mentions for this. Of any characters, I think either the cast from Chainsaw Man or the cast from Kaguya are the most likely picks. My honorable mentions were Kobeni, Power, and Hayasaka. I want to say right now that one of my nominations that I didn't end up picking, but I was kind of close to picking, was Hana from Aoashi. And I'm shocked that you didn't mention her, given how much you liked her in the show. I just don't think she has enough development. I think that's one of the things, and you know this, that I think this is where Aoashi really fails by not presenting that relationship between Aoi and Hana well at all. There's very, very little development there. And I think you played this off as like high schoolers don't know relationships. And I'm like, I think that's bullshit because literally we're watching Kaguya and being like, man, this is reminiscent of like high school relationships, how awkward they are. You're misrepresenting what I said. I just said that Aoi is a fucking idiot. And there are high schoolers who are fucking idiots. So like he's obviously clueless about romance and Hana's feelings and that is frustrating I still really enjoyed Hana as a character but maybe that's because thinking back to my soccer days and I'm like why didn't anyone make me meal plan <laughs> like, she would have been that. on there if she had more development and if the relationship with Aoi had more development she's truly a supporting character like she Ishigami is. is a supporting character but he has so much development and screen time and stuff that he's obviously the better pick and I mean that's exactly it season two 
I honestly have to say, I think was probably my favorite season of Kaguya, even more so than season three, which I know the ending was just mind-boggling. And I agree with you there that season three was mind-boggling. It suffered from some issues, as you said before, which really annoyed me. Season two was consistently high quality. And I'm not going to spoil the ending. And then I got to the ending with Ishigami's backstory. Ishigami's backstory is probably one of the best few episodes I have seen in Kaguya, if not any romantic comedy, because it takes a heavy turn from the rom-com aspect and actually goes a little darker and starts to go over the relationships and show the relationships that Ishigami has had in the past and how those influence the relationships he has in the present, especially with Shirogane. I think it was done beautifully, giving us a character that for a season and a half, we had assumed was relatively one-dimensional, was just this kind of neat character who doesn't have any impulse or drive in life, and telling us exactly what event caused that to happen and how that character can change. Ishigami in season two takes it upon himself to start changing himself. And I think that was a beautiful moment with the cheerleading club or whatever the fuck it was. And then when we get to season three, he actually comes into his own as a character who's not gotten over, but learned to deal with his past trauma. And throughout season three, he gets a nemesis, which we get to see further with Maki's character. The relationship they have together is hilarious. I honestly thought that they were going to be the couple that ends up. I don't know if they will. I haven't read that far. I don't know. Okay, so we'll see. So we finally, in season three, get to see some romantic development for Ishigami as well, and I thought that was beautiful. As a supporting character, I think Ishigami could himself be considered a main character for me, and I think that's something that is important when it comes to this category, at least. I want someone who could stand alone as a main character or who supports the cast in such a way that they're indispensable, and I think Ishigami is indispensable for this show. Yeah, I want to cut in before you give your nominations. I already gave you my nominations. Did you? Oh, yeah, you yeah, did. <laughs> I'm paying attention, don't worry. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you say all of this because it feels almost exactly like, at least in my head, what I said when I gave Ishigami the award two years ago for season two. The thing is that now you have all the context that's happened in season three, which is the relationship with Miko. They have this really fun love-hate relationship where they get along and they understand each other. They also don't get along at all and they're always harping on each other. That's really fun. You see him kind of grow into his own socially and want to ask Tsubame out and have some drive to do that. That's already like a huge plot point for him. You have his bromance with Shiragane developing and also like that one episode where they end up at the aquarium together. So fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. And then there's also the relationship he has with Kaguya where he starts to not be afraid of her and she starts to be more of an older sibling kind of presence to him, giving him advice and all that kind of stuff. So it's an amazing pick. And I probably would have picked it had I not already picked it. <laughs> I didn't even mention this, but the relationship with Kaguya was also beautiful. The way that she's yeah. actually prodding him to move forward with his relationship, even though she can't with her own, which is a central comedy point throughout most of the season. But also, you see that moment at the end of season two where she's talking behind the scenes to Hayasaka about Ishigami. And you see how all of these other characters are supporting him. I think it was just beautifully shown. This is like my wet dream right now that we're talking about Kaguya. <laughs> I just hope you know that. Yeah, what if I hadn't seen this? You would have been really fucking mad. <laughs> it's just, you know, we wouldn't have had this beautiful moment together. Yeah. All right, so for supporting character, 
my pick was Reagan from Mob Psycho 100, season three. Really? Okay. All right. You saying that makes a lot more sense because I thought you were going to pick Power, actually. So Power is on my list of nominations, along with Hana, and easily could have been interchanged with Aki or maybe even Makima or some of the other characters from Chainsaw Man. I also had Nanachi from Maiden Abyss in my list of contenders. She wasn't as central to the season, so felt like I didn't really want to give it to her, them. Actually, not sure. I think it's them. But obviously still enjoy any time with Nanachi. The reason I picked Reagan, other than the stuff that happened in Kaguya, he was probably the supporting character that impacted me the most. And this season of Mob really focused on Mob's personal growth. A little bit of a hot take, maybe. I actually enjoyed season two of Mob decently more than season three. And I'm actually not sure why, because the quality of season three was still really, really high. And it focused on interesting developments that I cared about. It just hit me a little bit less, I think, throughout its run. But what did really hit me are, first of all, just the moments with Reagan that are hilarious, just him up to his usual antics. But what really hit me was the moment towards the end of the season, which I can't really spoil for you or for other people listening, but he goes out of his way to basically just be that stable mentor figure, the way it's teased in the opening for Mob and kind of help him get to the emotional mental place that he wants to be and that he's been wanting to be for the past three seasons. And so that was easily the highlight of this season of Mob and what actually hit me emotionally. And so that's the reason that I picked him. I also could have gone for Dimple from Mob Psycho because he has a little bit of an emotional role in the early part of the season, but it is limited to that early part of the season. And then he's kind of out of the picture. So Reagan, for me, just taking into account the highlight of the season and then how much I've enjoyed his character throughout the entire run of Mob, just being hilarious comedic relief, but also kind of being at the center of a lot of the emotional moments, even in past seasons, kind of just had to give it to my boy. And he's the sexiest man on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, though. <laughs> yeah, totally surprisingly. I have a hard time deciding whether Reagan is a main character or a supporting character. I think he's one yeah. of those that actually blurs the line between the two. But I think that's a very, very strong pick because, as I said, supporting characters, I think, should progress into their own as main characters throughout this show and should be indispensable. And Reagan certainly is. All right. Main character. I guess I'm going first. I don't know if you remember all of our awards as closely as I do. Is this a riddle? <laughs> but I'm going to do something that you set the precedent for, which is pick both Shiragana and I Kaguya knew it. I for main knew it. character. What did you pick last year? Last year, I picked uh, Odakawa from Odd Taxi. Odd Taxi, yeah, okay. And the reason that I am picking this, I'm going to summarize just very, very succinctly if you haven't finished kaguya spoilers skip 30 <laughs> seconds 45 seconds a minute something like that these motherfuckers confessed <laughs> and they kissed with tongue my mouth actually dropped open <laughs> when i watched that and i told you this and i texted you this like seven times i was like holy fuck holy fuck they kissed oh my god i love these characters so much i think beyond the comedic aspects of them i think they're actually both main characters that have quite a bit of depth to them in terms of their background, in terms of their relationship with each other. And enjoying Kaguya so much and its adaptation for these three seasons, and it actually delivering beyond all of my expectations for them getting together and having the moment that we've been building up towards, 
was honestly just amazing. I could not contain my excitement watching that last episode. And it really cemented Kaguya as my favorite rom-com. And I don't think it's close for me. Toradora. You know, I love Toradora. So easily Shiragane and Kaguya watching their character development, watching their backstories and watching their relationship progress has been one of my favorite experiences in anime. So had to pick them. For my contenders, contenders, <laughs> for my contenders, <laughs> I, that in. <laughs> I, I had a few. So I had the entire Forger family from Spy Family, just such a fun set of three characters and picking all three of them is cheating a little bit, I know, but just seeing a healthy, fun family dynamic for much of the year, half of the year actually, was also one of the most fun experiences of the year. So had to have them on the list. Then I had Mob from Mob Psycho. Again, I just talked about how his character development was the central point of the season. So seeing him progress was, again, a culmination of three seasons that was, by the end, pretty touching. And then the last two were Hitori Goto, so Bochi from Bochi the Rock. Again, just so relatable on so many levels and so funny. I think the reason that I actually didn't pick her is because I think for a lot of people, they saw themselves 100% in Bochi and... For me, I really enjoyed the character and I related to aspects of it, but I don't have that severe social anxiety. Obviously, I have some social anxiety, but just not to that level. So it didn't hit me in the same place as I think it hit a lot of other people, but definitely still makes the list. And then my last one was actually Jolene from part six of JoJo's. Maybe my favorite JoJo, actually. I haven't read parts seven, eight, nine is coming up soon, but I think probably my favorite, actually. So... That's got to be on the list as well. It's not Dio. Dio's not a JoJo. I just said that. <laughs> I haven't watched any JoJo, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> I think picking Kaguya and Shiragane is a fantastic pick. I mean, that moment at the end of season three, I cannot describe to you how good that moment was. How good those last three or four episodes they had surrounding the cultural festival. the culture festival, festival. yeah. So, so good. good. They brought that entire show to a climax with that very, very last episode. That entire show and me. Yes. Yes. I'm not going to lie. Yes. That scene at the top of the clock tower, unbelievable. As I said, my jaw dropped. I think it was amazing. Okay. Why didn't I pick it? It's for the reasons that you said before. And who did I pick? Hitori Goto. Bochi the Rock. Hitori is just too relatable it's just such a good character and for anybody who has experienced social anxiety or anybody who has had the experience of being on the fringes of not necessarily society but of a friend group trying to find your way within a society that's alienating i think in some way you can relate to bochi and the way throughout the entire season that Bochi is able to not fully overcome her fear, but work on it with the help of other characters is just incredible. And this show truly is the most special show of the season for me and is primarily because of Bochi. Honorable mentions. You already mentioned Kaguya Shiragane. It's on my list. Chisato from Lycoris Recoil. Honestly, there was a moment where I was like, man, should I put Chisato as like main character of the season? And I was like, I don't think you'd ever let me hear the end of it if I picked Chisato. I would let you do whatever you want. <laughs> and finally, you haven't mentioned this character, but Marin Kitagawa from My Dress Up Darling. 
My Dress Up Darling is another show that we haven't really talked a lot about on this episode. Yeah. But for people who are into cosplay or just anybody within the anime fandom, this show is made for anime fans. It shows the love that you can have for a niche hobby such as anime or specifically even deeper within the anime community of cosplay. Marin, as I said in our introduction, is unabashedly a fan of cosplay and the way that she's able to go about her life doing the thing that she loves without any reservations is just shown incredibly well throughout that show and that's why i had to put her on my honorable mentions yeah i think bochi is a unbelievable pick and i think what is also nice is that she doesn't get over her social anxiety by any means but she does make enough strides throughout the show and has a supportive group of friends that she didn't have at the beginning and she is actually playing in shows and some of those shows go poorly and some of them go better but she is actually doing the things she wants to do and the things that she set out to do and making an effort through friends that understand her and so i think that it's just a very nice kind of through line for that character what's the blue-haired girl's name oh um i forgot her name the bass player the bassist, yeah. I was really close to putting her as a supporting character as well. Yeah. Because she's hilarious. I actually meant to mention that like any of the Kesuku band members you could have put in the supporting category because yeah. they were just a really fun group of characters that really played well off each other, I thought. Yeah, specifically Pion. <laughs> There's so much lewd art of her for some reason. Character design, the new category for the year. What do you have for me? What do you think? What's your guess? Cyberpunk. It's a fair guess. I forgot about this in our <laughs> OST category. Oh, I thought you were saying you forgot about Cyberpunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I would never forget about Cyberpunk here. Although I don't know how I forgot about this in our music category. Character design has to go to One Piece Film Red, Eichiro Oda. Any excuse to put One Piece in the character <laughs> design category? <laughs> Oda is known for designing some of the most recognizable characters of all time. The One Piece cast is so distinct, is so visually recognizable because of the amount of time that Oda has spent designing his characters, but also designing all the, and I will say this again, accoutrement, the other <laughs> elements of their clothing, Somebody their style. Somebody flame that. <laughs> In One Piece Film Red, the characters not only have a unique style for most of the movie, but they then have a clothing shift for the second half of the movie. That was amazing. The way that Oda is able to bring these characters to life, the way that he's able to stylistically show them on screen, and the way that you don't even have to look at them fully, you can just look at an outline, you know exactly who they are, shows that I don't think there's anyone that even comes close to Oda when it comes to character design. That being said... Honorable mentions, I was very, very close to putting Cyberpunk Edgerunners as my winner here. And specifically because I actually went to that panel at Anime NYC and got to see the Trigger staff talk about how they design these characters all the way from pre-production to their final designs. And it was really meaningful to sit there and see how that process goes and all of the different iterations they had of the cast of characters. Like... Lucy and Rebecca did not, in pre-production, look at all like the way that they looked in their final versions. And to be able to see the amount of effort it took to make those characters was incredible. And that's why Cyberpunk was very close to the top of my list. Like Chorus Recoil, I just fucking love Chisato, dude. Like, I just, I don't know. 
I just, I don't know, man. <laughs> he's Hideo Kojima. He's that guy. <laughs> he is that guy. I am that guy. And finally, Spy Family. Spy Family is another one where I have seen so much art over the past year that it is unreal. There are so many different variations of Lloyd and Yor together. Everything from doing things platonically to just straight up fucking. And it's amazing. The art is amazing. <laughs> And I have to put Spy Family's character design on here as well. I respect the One Piece here, despite making fun of you for it. I'm glad you put it in there for a movie that we saw together. That means a lot. So I actually did pick Cyberpunk. (laughs) And I said this in the first impressions episode where we talked about Cyberpunk after it had dropped and we'd both seen it. And I have a lot of problems with the ending of Cyberpunk. I do not have any problems with the animation, the style, the beginning of Cyberpunk. I think they did so many things really, really well. And Studio Trigger does knock it out of the park, usually with their character designs. And I said this in that episode as well, where I was like, whoever fucking designed Lucy needs a raise (laughs) immediately. (laughs) Truly, she's one of the best designed characters I've seen in a long, long time. Unfortunately, then you also have to write that character and that's where they kind of fucked it up. But just the design itself, and not even just Lucy, whether it's David, Rebecca, most of the other cast, it all just looks so stylish, so fitting for the setting and the narrative that it was actually a pretty easy pick, I think, for this category. Although I had a lot of contenders. So I had a few that you mentioned, Licorice Recoil and Spy Family were both in here. You're shaking your head because I keep saying it differently and I can't break the habit. So it's never changing. And then the few other ones that I had were JoJo's part six, just because the JoJo's designs by Araki are iconic and they're so kind of embedded in fashion culture and things like that, that felt like they deserved a place on the list. I had Made an Abyss on here, mostly just for actually the creature designs, which I think are fantastic to look at and see. And they're kind of designs that you're just not going to see in any other anime. I had Gundam, which from Mercury on here, which I think Suleta and Miorine as the two, as you mentioned in the seasonal review, lesbian leads to this Gundam franchise just look really, really good. But they clearly also spent a lot of time designing the rest of the cast. And it's a cast that really stands out. And then my last one is actually Tatami Time Machine Blues, which feels a little like, okay, those original designs were done for Tatami Galaxy, but they're done by a Japanese artist that I really, really like. And he did a few new designs for the sequel. Obviously, a lot of the designs take the same because it's just using the same cast. But I do love the way those designs look and the way Masaki Uasa in Tatami Galaxy and now Shingo Natsume and Time Machine Blues made those come to life. So had to give that a shout out as well. All right. Animation. All right. So this is me. It's time to throw the hipster hat on for a category or two. You know I like Sakuga. And you know that I obviously enjoy it in something like Demon Slayer, in something like Chainsaw Man, in something like Mob Psycho, where we're going to get some really nice animation showcasing some really nice battles, some really nice fights. And that's what people traditionally think of when they think of really good animation. But here on this podcast, I am in charge of highlighting more niche amazing animation. I like that you take your role seriously. (laughs) You're like, no, no, no. I can't just not be this role. I have to be this role. 
and tried to push the narrative that it's not just Battle Shonen that can have amazing animation, which, you know, nobody was arguing against, but I'm making the point anyways. So my pick for best animation this year was Bochi the Rock. Because not only was just the standard animation really, really nice to look at, the show has a nice style. They, in my opinion, did some of the best actual music animation during the performances out of a lot of shows that I've seen. A lot of shows will either keep their style and cut away a ton, or they will use CGI, use other tricks that clearly make it look worse. I'm thinking of the idols dancing in Zombieland Saga, which are like all CGI, which look horrific as much as I love that show. And so the fact that they obviously did still use CGI, but generally the performances all look amazing and you can really see the care and the detail that was put into that. But what I also love about Bochi the Rock is the way this young team of animators went above and beyond to make all the gags really land by using different types of media that aligned with the jokes. So whether you have fucking Bochi having a complete meltdown on the ground and they like animate her with this bizarre, like sketchy style where none of the lines are like in the character design and the actually drawing, but it really encompasses what she's going through internally. Or when she had another kind of like meltdown and I don't know if you remember this, but she like floats through like these different Microsoft paint looking set designs. Just all of those little details where they're like using different mixed media. They had a few where they used stop motion animation too. All that stuff elevates the animation as a whole for me. And so I really, really adored Bochi the Rock as a series. I think we've talked about Bochi and talked about the music, talked about a lot of stuff, but the animation was one of my favorite parts of one of my favorite shows of the year. Otherwise, I basically had on my nominations the things that I already mentioned. Mob Psycho continuing to be completely hand-drawn and giving us amazing action, although I still think action-wise, not as exciting as season two. Chainsaw Man, I want to pause on for a second because we should talk about the animation there. I'm assuming it's at least in your nominations, so maybe we'll do that in a second when you get to it. I needed to shout out Demon Slayer because obviously Ufotable still makes it look amazing, whatever qualms you have with Demon Slayer. And I also had Cyberpunk on here because Trigger knocked it out of the park with the animation there as well. All right. So I picked Cyberpunk Edgerunners. Damn. (laughs) It's not that surprising, really. It's not. It's really not. (laughs) That was not really a big gotcha. I think after watching, again, Trigger's panel at Anime NYC, I came to appreciate the amount of work that went into Cyberpunk Edgerunners. Seeing the backgrounds stand alone, seeing the character designs, seeing the animation flow, the stylistic elements of it that are so very clearly Trigger in terms of its style, I don't think there was another show that hit me as hard this year, either in terms of animation or compositing together as Cyberpunk did, maybe aside from Bochi the Rock for emotional value. I think the elements that Cyberpunk had in it elevated the show from a show that was a good video game adaptation with a decent storyline for most of it to an excellent adaptation because of its animation and its feel and the vibe you get of Night City from the way that it's drawn. I think that the only one that comes close to me this year is going to be Bochi the Rock. As you said, for the variety that you have of the animation, the different styles that you put within one thing. But even when we talk about style, the style of Cyberpunk Edgerunners is so original, is so unique. When we talk about 
other major animation works from the past few years. I talked about Arcane, and I think there are many people that would agree that Arcane is one of the best animated shows they've seen in the past few years, if not they've seen ever, because it's so stylistically original, and I feel the same way about Cyberpunk Edgerunners. Going to the honorable mentions, we mentioned Bochi the Rock. Obviously, we could talk about Chainsaw Man a little bit. You didn't talk about this, and I'm actually surprised you didn't talk about this because you saw it and I didn't, but Akebi Sailor Uniform. I saw a number of clips from Akebi's, and even though I didn't watch the full thing, it looks beautiful. The amount of care taken into doing things like animating her hair as she's moving, animating water, the sunlight, all of these different elements just give it a breath of fresh air. And even though there's fucking foot smelling and shit going on, damn, those feet look really good. It is an unbelievable show in terms of how it looks and it does probably deserve to be on here for animation. I really just blacked that show out after I had to watch like three different feet <laughs> scenes. Like, honestly, I just couldn't do it even though I did finish it. Yeah. But the slice of life, countryside school direction animation was really, really nice. I did want to talk about Chainsaw Man because you mentioned in the summary that it was controversial. And I think one of the reasons it was controversial is actually the animation. And I think we can all kind of see, in terms of the animation and direction, the vision that MAPPA was going for and that Ryu Nakayama was going for, the director, in terms of making it cinematic. Like, they really stated that they wanted to make Chainsaw Man a cinematic experience. And I think that's a respectable choice, and I think they did pretty well setting out to do that and doing pretty nice-looking CGI blending and all these kind of things. I think the qualm that people had is that it doesn't give off the same vibe that the manga gives off and the opening and a lot of the endings actually encapsulate the style and the vibe of the Chainsaw Man manga and of Fujimoto's vision for it better. It's like a lot quirkier. It's not cinematic. I still think it works for the series. So I agree with you that hating it is the wrong take. But I will say that I at least understand having read the manga that it is a choice to go with that animation style and that direction style. And I think it turned out well, but I can understand that it's not the expectation that a lot of people had or the way that they would have at least approached adapting Fujimoto. I hear this from manga readers a lot. This is going to sound like I'm fucking maligning all manga readers and I'm not. But I think there's something to be said about expecting the way that something is going to be animated and it turning out differently than that and people having to come to terms with how the animation looks, even if it's different from their preconceived image in their mind. I think that even if it's different, as you said, with Chainsaw Man, it's still a fantastic, fantastic adaptation with many elements that push the limits of how animation works, that push the limits of CGI, of hand-drawn art, of the minutia that you really don't notice every frame to frame, but that makes something feel alive. And I know I've said that a number of times throughout this episode, but there are so many elements of Chainsaw Man that when you watch it, give you this idea that what you're watching is actually alive, is something closer to the live action than it is to other animation. The movements of people's heads, their eyes, their hair. I talked about the smallest things when Denji and Makima are sitting in the backseat of the car at the beginning of episode two or the end of episode one. I can't even remember. And 
Makima turns her head towards him and you see her hair fall to the side. You see her head cock a little bit. You see her eyes moving. And it's just all of these different elements of the animation make it feel so real. And then to say that it wasn't how I expected it to be because I'm a manga reader, I think it's just overblown criticism. I think that people need to understand and be aware of the fact that, yes, it can be different from what you expect, but that doesn't make it bad. I think I'm trying to balance these two things here, where on one hand, if reading the manga and analyzing the manga and loving a source material gives you a certain feeling and is drawn in that feeling, and then someone has an interpretation that you feel doesn't align with that, it's okay to be disappointed or not like that. But I do also really agree with your point of like, at least for me, I am trying to watch more anime not in a, okay, I'm going to consume this. I need to have my rating. I need to nitpick the plot. I need to nitpick the animation. Like, I don't like watching anime that way. I want to just watch it, analyze the themes and discuss it and notice the things that I don't like, but I want to actually experience it rather than kind of looking for all of its faults. So I am trying to do a little bit more of that. I think obviously it's easier said than done, but we would probably all be better off if we enjoyed anime as the experience of actually watching the anime. Yeah, I mean, as we've mentioned multiple times over the past few years now, we do go in with the mindset of reviewers. And I do notice myself being overly critical at points. And I definitely have to step back and be like, well, is that just a stylistic choice? Or is that something that annoyed me? Like how much does it matter also, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we just had this discussion at the end of Kaguya season three, when we've said two times so far that there were moments where the animation suffered, perhaps because of budget issues or timeline issues, whatever. And there were moments where there would be manga panels that came up on screen in very, very important emotional moments. And the first time it happened, I was like, oh, this is a stylistic choice. Like, I can get behind this. Kage is having this internal debate, and this is a very pivotal moment. It's cool to see the stylistic change into the manga panel. But then it would happen again and again and again. And there's a moment where Ishigami, his face was literally juxtaposed from between the animation to the manga panel and the manga panel just starts multiplying where I was like, is this like some Evangelion shit? Like where the end of it, where the budget was running out and they were just like, let me just add some manga panels and flash them back and forth on screen. It really felt like that. I don't know if that was an inside joke, but that was something that I was hypercritical of when I was watching the show initially. And then I was like, okay, you know what? Let me actually step back. That should be a stylistic thing. Like I shouldn't malign the entire show because they decided to go this way with this quirky art. To me, it was more sad that they even had to do that when they probably didn't want to in the first place, right? Because of all the strain of the production brought on them by, again, Aniplex as always. So to me, it's kind of a feels bad. Those specific choices don't really bother me as much, but there are other things that bother me as much. And I think for those things, I also have to kind of let myself get immersed in the show and think about how much does it actually matter in the grand scheme of my enjoyment. Last two honorable mentions for animation for me were actually Spy Family because I think Spy Family's production was amazing. What Studio and Cloverworks, I think, combined in a way that a few of us were uh, worried about because... Independently, the studios have had a history of not fulfilling their promise, the Promise Neverland being an option. And Demon Slayer, you already mentioned that one. Ufotable never drops the ball when it comes to animation. The season two is just another evidence of that. All right. Second to last category, director of the year. What do you have? What do you think? So I would have guessed that you were going to pick Imaishi for Edge Runners, but you've already given edge runners two awards and now i'm like i don't think you like edge runners that much oh you're trying to do so this I don't fucking know. metagaming dude <laughs> this is game so yeah it's too much here. metagaming beforehand i would have said imaishi i don't actually know what you're gonna pick so my director pick was ryu nakayama 
for Chainsaw Man. Chainsaw Man, even though I didn't give it the award for best animated show this season, was I think far and away the best directed show this season because of the fact that every episode feels original and it feels different. There's something unique about the way that every episode shows the lives of Denji and Power and Aki and Makima and all the other characters relating to each other, fighting the creatures. When we come to episode eight and that fucking episode we had a huge argument about when it came to the directorial (laughs) style, I think you're right. That episode was the pinnacle of direction in Chainsaw Man. Because watching it again, you get to see the elements, the way that the camera is used, the cinematography, the placement, the timing of the cuts that just show that the direction of this episode and the direction of Chainsaw Man overall is in a league of its own. The honorable mentions that I had here, as you said, Imaishi for Cyberpunk Edge Runners, I think that... The animation and the direction go hand in hand. I think it's really hard to have a show that's animated poorly and be good in terms of direction. And that's why there's a very strong correlation here. With Cyberpunk Edgerunners, the animation is so stylistically original and the direction in the same way is so original. When it comes to showing the characters' profiles, the moments that the director chooses to change the cuts, all of those were fantastic in Edgerunners. And finally... I don't know how I couldn't have this on here. Keichiro Saito for Bochi the Rock. The moment that I remember Bochi the Rock most clearly is that moment when they're performing and the camera changes its angle to be on the neck of the guitar looking up at Bochi as she's playing. That is genius camera work. And I think that that is just evidence of an experienced director who has honed their craft to the point that they can show a scene from the way that it's supposed to be shown the best and not necessarily the way that it would be shown in the way that we expect. That vantage point shows Bochi playing. You get to see her breaking out of her shell from that social anxiety into that performer in front of a live audience really well. And throughout the entire run of Bochi the Rock, this was very close to also winning this category for me. I think the direction just really highlights the fact that this is a special show. Very, very strong list. I pretty much agree with everything you said. I think the thing to add is that specific episode eight was done by Goso, who is a episode director that I really like. Obviously, the series director was Nakayama. And that's actually why we had the fucking argument about this episode, because I was like, damn, Goso knocked it out of the park, especially after his ranking of Kings episode, whichever one it was that he directed. And you were like, I just felt like it was really good, but I was so focused on the plot. I just felt like it was more of the same and didn't really seem Which special. Which is really and was- good. <laughs> and then you were fucking like, no, 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 it's Gosso. It's Gosso, though. <laughs> Anyways, I'm glad we came to an agreement. Very strong list. My pick for director of the year is Shingo Natsume for Tatami oh, Time Machine. Oh, my fucking Blues. God. <laughs> Of course you're going to pick this one. (laughs) And I almost felt like I fucking owed it to Natsume because I know he listens to this podcast and he was upset that I didn't give him the award last year for Sunny Boy, which I thought was an incredibly directed show and was only exceeded by Naoko Yamada's Haike Monogatari. So that is what it is. But his work on Tatami Time Machine Blues was not as 
expressive and original as his work on Sunny Boy. But he just is one of my favorite young working directors from his work on the first season of One Punch Man all the way through this. And I'm just really excited to see more of what he does, especially now that it seems like he's working at Science Saru, working under Masaki Yuasa. And Sunny Boy was more expressive and more original, but what was amazing about Tatami Time Machine Blues is that he took one of my top three anime of all time, Tatami Galaxy, with one of my favorite directors of all time, Masaki Yuasa, and was able to create a sequel to that, of course, which the source had already been written, but was able to craft and direct a sequel that preserved the feeling of the original, but still embedded enough of his own directorial flair to the adaptation. I think that's something that I was really apprehensive about and that he just knocked out of the park and I really just fucking respect for that. And honestly, watching Tatami Time Machine Blues, I know not that many people watched it, it was pretty much the only hardcore Natsume Tatami Galaxy fans, especially because it was also stuck in Disney jail. But it was some of the most fun I had watching anime this year. And I think if you're a fan of the Tatami Galaxy, you just have to go check it out. It's only a few short episodes, like five or six. It's basically the length of a movie. And it was just a ton, a ton of fun. My contenders were some of the ones you already mentioned. So I had Ryu Nakayama as well for Chainsaw Man. I had Imaishi as well for Edge Runners. The ones you didn't mention were Masaki Yuasa for Inuo. Inuo was such a creative, fun movie. It's not my favorite Masaki Yuasa work, but his direction on it still feels just special and unique in the anime industry. So had to put him on here for that. Getting to see his movies in a theater is always a treat. I also had Shinichi Omata for season three of Kaguya-sama. I know some of the animation and production was strained for season three, but all of the little gags and the extra references and the stuff that the team comes up with to keep Kaguya-sama feeling fresh, I especially respected given that they had production strain for this season. I think the way they pulled it off was phenomenal. And the last one I had was Takahiro Hasui for Mob Psycho 100 season three. I think generally has done just a very, very good job being on this series. So had to shout him out as well. And that's the list. Were you expecting Natsume? I assume you were. <laughs> I was expecting Natsume, but I didn't know that you would make him your director of the year. I thought okay. he'd be on the list, but I didn't know it was going to be that high. I think that Kaguya's director probably should have been in my honorable mentions, considering how hard it is to actually direct something like Kaguya. The slapstick comedy element of it is all created through direction, and I think that's fantastic. I mean, there's an element of, obviously, dialogue there, but the way that the frames switch rapidly between the characters, the way that they overlap different panels through the animation, is, I think, that's something that Kaguya excels in. And a lot of that is based on direction, so that definitely should be included in my Elevates the source material. All right, should we do anime of the year? I wonder if we have the same one. I wonder. So I guess I'm going first since you went first for the last one. And let's see if I surprise you a little bit. What was your one last year? It was Ranking of Kings? Ranking of Kings, yeah. Okay. So I thought hard about this throughout the year. And there were a lot of really amazing anime that came out this year. I think it was a very, very good year. And there were a lot of things that I could have picked. What I've realized about myself in doing these picks the past two years is that I don't tend to pick what I actually think is the best anime sometimes. 
So I picked Kaguya in 20, I guess, for the year 2020. I still think that's my favorite season of the series. Last year, I picked Ranking of Kings. And both of those shows, I think, hit a place for me emotionally, impacted me in a way. And I think thinking about how I go about picking anime of the year, I tend to pick the shows that make a big impact in my life, make me think in a different way, make me change something about the way I look at media. And that's why I picked Chainsaw Man as my anime of the year. Wow. I actually didn't expect that. I didn't think you would. So I already picked Kaguya two years ago, so I didn't want to pick Kaguya again. Yeah, I thought it was going to be Kaguya, and I didn't know your little rule ahead of time. So I was pretty close to picking Bochi the Rock as well. I think if I'm being objective, those were the two best shows of the year. Followed closely, for me at least, by Tatami Time Machine Blues, because I think it is such an amazing extension of what is already one of my favorite shows. But those three, I think, were my other candidates, and they were generally what I would consider to be the best anime of the year. Chainsaw Man is not that. I already mentioned the issues I have, or the issues that a lot of people have that I can at least be sympathetic to with the adaptation. But it's the only series this year and ever that has just made me go binge a manga. I've never wanted to go literally just finish a manga. And obviously part of that is because we did the Fujimoto episode and I kind of knew what he was capable of. This season of Chainsaw Man doesn't even adapt the best parts after reading it. If I would have been a manga reader before this season came out and I would have known it was 12 episodes, I would have been like, stop the hype train. Like none of the good shit is happening yet. Obviously some of the good shit happens and it was a very enjoyable season, but all of the amazing parts of Chainsaw Man that make it so special are still coming. <laughs> so it almost feels weird to say that it's the best anime of the year when it hasn't even adapted the best parts of the series. But I think again, it made me go read the entire manga, which I love. It made me think about, which I talked about in the Mailmag episode, it made me think about why Chainsaw Man resonates. It made me think about how it feels to be a millennial in society just wanting to get by. It makes me think about how that was able to be embedded into a shonen. I'll be honest, maybe this is the anime hipster in me speaking. I thought I was kind of over shonen, especially battle shonen. Attack on Titan was kind of not falling off, but the more it drags, the less I am heavily invested in it compared to a few years ago. I'm liking Jujutsu Kaisen. I like JoJo's, but those are more like for fun watches. Mob, I even enjoyed season two much more than season three. I truly felt like I'm kind of growing out of Battle Shonen. And Chainsaw Man made me realize that, you know, if it's done in a way that makes me think about the way I exist as a person in society and what all these characters are going through, and then you add on that all the stuff that was special about the adaptation, like the endings, like the opening, like the direction, which you just gave your pick for, I think it made me think more about media. It made me most excited to watch it every week. And that's why I picked Chainsaw Man. So I don't know if you can call me an anime hipster anymore because I picked like the most popular show of the year when I don't even think it was the best show of the year. I mean, I think it's a very fair pick. It was <laughs> definitely on my short list for anime of the year. I don't think that there's any major criticism I have of Chainsaw Man. And I know that as a manga reader, you can probably say something more about the pacing of the anime versus the manga and the things we have to look forward to. But with its current adaptation, I don't think I have any major criticism of how it actually turned out. And that is not easy to do. 
I think that's fair. The only criticism is that everybody said it was going to be the best anime of all time for this amazing source material. And I felt the same way when I watched the first few episodes. I was like, it's good. But I think without having read the manga, I would just be like, yeah, it was a very good adaptation, fun battle shonen. I'm not sure why everybody's calling it so special. So it almost feels unfair that I'm picking it because of how much I love the manga, yeah. which I do almost love more than the anime. But it felt like with my pick, I just felt compelled to pick the thing that changed my life the most in the past year. And that was Chainsaw Man. I completely see that. I also see what you mean about how deeply relatable it is to people of our generation and possibly other generations. But we've talked about this before, how as millennials, there is this sense of existential dread that we will never be able to have the same things that our parents had. And we have to struggle every single day to meet the bare minimum to just exist. And therefore, what do we have to look forward to? Why are we living? What is pleasurable to us? And Denji provides some answers to those questions by living life in the simplest way possible, giving into all of his base desires and saying that those are his goals in life. And for us to look at that, I feel like we do see a reflection of ourselves, which I think that's why this is a really, really great pick for Anime of the Year. I think that you know that that's not my pick. For a bit there, I was fucking actually worried. I was like, shit, are we going to have the same pick? That's never happened before. <laughs> no, in classic Bakabanser fashion, I think that you know that my pick is going to be Bochi the Rock. I was not sure. Really? Okay. All right. Bochi the Rock suffers from being too relatable. When I talk about a reflection of oneself... When I look at Bochi the Rock, I see a lot of how I used to be in grade school in Bochi. I was unable to show my full personality because I didn't want others to know how I actually felt. I was unable to come out and talk about the things I love, not only amongst acquaintances, but also among friends in much the same way that Bochi still struggles using words and emoting herself and expressing her emotions properly to her bandmates. Bochi struggles with social anxiety in all spheres of her life, whether it's her family, whether it's her friends, and whether it's outside society. And for someone who has had any level of social anxiety, I feel like you can see some element of yourself in there. I'm not going to go on record and be like, yeah, I was like unable to talk to anybody and I would fucking fall on the floor and have like an epileptic convulsion. Like, no, that's not true. And I think that there is definitely an exaggerated hyperbolic element to Bochi the Rock. But that hyperbolic element is what helps you to relate and laugh at what can be a debilitating condition. And so I think the way that it's portrayed is just beautiful. The animation and the lengths that the animators went through to make this special, to make this original, really come through in this show. And I don't think that any other show on my shortlist made me feel so seen as much as Bochi did this year. As I already mentioned, it's a fucking masterpiece of a show. And I loved literally everything about it, from the animation to the characters, to the music, to the development, to the comedy which we haven't even really talked about how funny that show is like i actually laughed as much as in kaguya or any of the other top tier comedies for me i was laughing a lot watching that show 
Also really looking forward to it every week. I'm so happy it's this small adaptation of a four coma that broke out into the mainstream. I do think along with Kaguya, it was the best anime of the year. The only reason why maybe it's not up there for me the way Chainsaw Man is, is that it just has that slight lower tier of relatability for my experience. And of course, I still have aspects of that. And I don't think you need to one-on-one, as you were saying, map yourself to a character in order to empathize and to have it feel relatable. But I feel like for other people, it relates so much more that that slight difference does change a little bit of how at least I perceive the show. I was a little bit between were you going to pick Bochi or were you going to pick Kaguya? I think I had kind of Chainsaw Man bleach doubts in there somewhere, but I was really like, you know, I know he loved both these shows, but you always talk about how much the ending matters to you. And you were like, yeah, the last episode of Bushy the Rock didn't do it as much as their earlier performance. And the ending of Kaguya like fucking blew your mind. 10 I mean, times I over. Kaguya nailed it. I wasn't sure if that was going to swing it, basically. Yeah. So why did I not pick Kaguya, which is another show on my shortlist? So my honorable mentions were Chainsaw Man. Cyberpunk Edgerunners, which we didn't talk about. However, I can talk about that in a second. And Kaguya-sama. The reason I didn't pick Kaguya-sama is that it wasn't consistent throughout the season as much as it was in season two, and it wasn't as relatable to me as season two was. Season three ends it perfectly. It ends it perfect, no notes. It is the most epic conclusion I have seen of any show this entire year. And you always say the ending is paramount, so that's why I was really having to think about this. <laughs> I'm fucking Tristan out here. Now, why did I not pick it? Because throughout much of its run, it didn't hit me as much as the ending to season two did. And I know that's not a fair comparison because the ending is like where we climax in every show. But for much of season two... We were comparing itself to season one, where there wasn't that much romantic development until the last couple episodes. Season two had a steady pace of romantic development between Shiragane and Kaguya throughout it. And then it ended with the absolute banger of Ishigami's backstory. And I think that was my favorite backstory in all of Kaguya so far. And that's why I loved season two. Season three started off, and yes, it did progress the relationship even more, but there were moments that were slower there are episodes i didn't really enjoy as much that felt like they were kind of just put in there so that future things could reference it like for example the doctor scene where kaguya has like a literal syncopal episode once she thinks of shiragane and so there were moments in there that i didn't love as much as season two and that's why i didn't feel confident naming it anime of the year even though it landed the ending cyberpunk edge runners cyberpunk edge runners is certainly on my short list for anime of the year because of all of the elements that we talked about with its animation, its music, etc. But on a more personal note, I talked about this in a previous episode, that I felt burned out with anime for the better half of the first half of 2022. And it was hard for me to actually get in and start binging some of the shows that we were talking about, do the First Impressions episodes, because I kind of just wanted to see something that was live action, see something that was different than what we had been seeing for so long and watching for the past two years now as almost like a second job. And Cyberpunk Edgerunners was that show that pulled me right back into it because of how unique it is. It takes so many of the elements, the gratuitous lifestyle 
the dark lifestyle of Night City juxtaposes those things with incredible animation, great dialogue, and for most of it, a pretty good plotline, and puts that on screen in a way with Trigger style that I had not seen in a long time. And so seeing that, it really brought me back into anime, which is personally why I had to include it on this shortlist. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think if we were to redo our Trigger episode, we probably would both have Cyberpunk in the top five, certainly. As I mentioned earlier, it's just really that character development, specifically the female characters and specifically Lucy, for example, that really let me down and the ending feeling like it didn't really deliver enough like I wanted it to. But there was a ton about Cyberpunk that I did really like. I just want to highlight as we close here that we hit the role reversal. I'm out here picking the big battle shonen, and you're out here picking the smaller adaptation of cute girls in a band. How does this yeah, feel? Yeah, so on that note, actually, uh, <laughs> so Naoko Yamada is going to be really tough. <laughs> you know, I kind of saw that coming, actually, because I think that these two shows are really meaningful for us in different ways. And I know we had been talking about for the past year yeah. how important Chainsaw Man was to you, especially now that you began reading the manga. Like, I knew Kaguya was already big for you because you were pacing yourself through the manga and you would talk about, like, you know, yeah, your commute is reading this chapter and showing this chapter. And I felt really bad for spoiling a major event in Kaguya for you earlier <laughs> this year on accident. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. I forgive you. Thanks. And then you started reading Fujimoto's works and I was like, oh, man. Chainsaw Man must be really a big deal for him. And then you started fucking jerking off to it constantly. And I'm like, <laughs> damn, Fujimoto's works are really big for him. And then when it came out, I think you were very excited to see that. And I saw that you related to it on a personal level, which is why I was like, I could definitely see it as anime of the year for him. I just thought that Kaguya was going to do it for you because the ending was so, so paramount. It was amazing. And I feel like if you didn't have your stupid rule, you might have actually put it as anime of the year. Yeah, I think if we had started the podcast this year and I hadn't already picked it, there's a decent chance. It just kind of feels wrong to have three years of us giving these awards and me picking Kaguya for two out of three of them, especially when I generally preferred one season to the other. You know, I pretty much agree with your assessment of season two versus season three. I think it's a little bit complicated by the fact that the ending to season three is so good. And I think I enjoyed the run of season three, maybe a little bit more than you did, but I still prefer season two, kind of the consistency of it, the last few episodes with Ishigami. So yeah, I might've, but that's not where we are. So Chainsaw Man it is. Any takeaways from the year? Anything you want to say looking forward to 2023? Yeah, you're a little dirty mainstream. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I really hate partaking in this discussion of the best season of anime ever. I just really don't know how we're going to top fall 2022. It was just an unbelievably yeah. diverse and important season of anime because it had something that anyone could relate to. Whether you're a huge fan of Shonen, whether you fucking love Yuri, go watch G-Witch. Whether you're a fucking Gundam fan, also go watch G-Witch. <laughs> Bochi, Social Anxiety. The list goes on and on and on. And like, if 2023 can even maintain a portion of what we had for fall 2022, I'm going to be excited for it. We know it will. 
hopefully notwithstanding other production issues and fucking Attack on Titan season finale, final season, whatever the fuck it is. Like, I'm really excited for that. I'm really excited to see other things come back, such as Bleach. I really want to see how that goes. I'm kind of kicking myself for actually not getting to it, even though I wanted to. It's okay. It's going on for like two more years, so you can nominate it any other year. (laughs) And so, um, I mean, again, I just think that anime is in a better place than it has ever been. I think every year we get to reinvigorate our love and our passion for this. I'm going to say that and immediately become depressed with anime again, just like I was at the beginning (laughs) half of 2022. But uh, hopefully that won't happen, and hopefully you'll be uh, hearing me talk about this for a while longer. I don't think you're going to be a choice there, but here we are. (laughs) Yeah, Robbie's contractually bound to the podcast now. Yeah, I think similarly for me, there are obviously the big things I'm excited about that will emulate some of the hype from this fall, which I think, as you said, was one of the best seasons we may have ever had. Obviously, Attack on Titan's coming back. Demon Slayer's coming back. Jujutsu Kaisen's coming back. That's probably the one I'm most excited for out of those three. So I'm excited for all of those things for sure. I think what I have learned, though, is that Anime is so big now that every year we're going to have those big things to look forward to. Spy Family 2 coming back in a season and a movie next year. We're going to have those big franchises there all the time. That's not going to change. So I'm obviously looking forward to those. But I think now what I am most excited for is those shows that come out of nowhere and take the community by storm. Like Ranking of Kings or Odd Taxi or Bochy the Rock. Even G-Witch reinvigorating Gundam. Those kind of shows that are maybe smaller, maybe don't have as big of an impact or maybe turn into having as big of an impact like Bochy did are the things that I can't predict what it's going to look like, but we also seem to kind of get every year now. And that's, I think, what I'm most excited for. And the Kaguya movie. <laughs> All right. Don't look at the podcast runtime. Yeah, I'm going to suffer Don't through this episode. And <laughs> I've already looked at it. <laughs> this might end up being the longest episode we've ever had. Fuck. I don't know how we did that. I know exactly how we did that. <laughs> That's been it. Hopefully you enjoyed our full review of the past year of anime and all of our awards. When we post the episode and you listen to it, let us know what you picked for all these different categories. What was your anime of the year? Uh, We'd really like to hear from you and see what resonated with you the most from this year, the way that Bochi the Rock and Chainsaw Man resonated with us. Otherwise, our next episode is going to be our winter 2023 first impressions. Got to get back to that seasonal grind. So that's what we're going to do. Give me a fucking break, dude. (laughs) You have two weeks. It's fine. Follow. (laughs) You can't even blame me for this one because we're bordering on three hours. So I'm just delirious at this point. Subscribe to the podcast anywhere that you get your podcast. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere like that. If you could give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that would mean a lot. Really helps out the show. Otherwise, check out our website, bakabanter.com and check out our Twitter at bakabanterpod. And for anyone that stuck around this long, our second anniversary is coming up pretty soon for our first episode and we might have a special announcement for that so stay tuned otherwise we've been the baka banter lads and we'll catch you all in the next one <laughs>